My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The end, The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The The Decision. The Exposure. The Sound. Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Weak. The Conspiracy. The Resolution. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The The Beginning. Sacrifice. Let's talk about the book. Book 52, The <laughs> Sacrifice. What do you think, Ray? Um, I was very angry for a lot of this book about a lot of things. That's mm-hmm. just, that's my general thing. I mean... It's your secret. You're always angry. I'm just... About Animorphs. Exactly. I am, in fact, the Hulk. Hulkamorph. Anna Hulk. I did briefly think that I had become the Queen of Predictions once again. Me and Axe both thought that Cassie was dead, and I was like, it's two books from the end, surely not in this book. <laughs> Does seem too soon, yeah, yeah. But uh, she didn't. And also, I just, I was really mad at Axe for just a lot of it. His mm-hmm. decisions and his judgments and mm-hmm. him being a real jerk a lot of the time. But also, it's nice that we finally revisited Cassie's decision. yeah. I think Ted is real relieved that we have fuller context now. Yes, poor Ted. Poor Ted. Thank you for not spoiling the fact that we were going to be talking about it a lot more. I appreciate that about you. Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts about this book that I'm excited to talk about with you guys. What do you think, Jenny? I had really mixed feelings about this. There were a few very good parts. There were a few very nonsense parts. I mean, they. They finally blew up the year pool. Spoiler for the summary, I guess, which is a huge thing. And it's so weird that I don't remember any of this. Yeah. And I feel like reading this now, I'm, I'm getting some new perspective on Teenage Jenny. I feel like I've been really hard on her with regard to the ending by being like, the ending's probably fine. Jenny just didn't want it to end. And so anything would have been traumatic. And it was just like the disruption of the premise and stuff. And I think I don't specifically remember this feeling, maybe part because, like, you know, I blocked these books out. But, like, this series is not earning its ending. I feel very personally betrayed, less strongly than I did at the time. But, Mm. like, I think maybe my reaction was because they're not doing it well enough. I recognize, and we can get into this more later, but, like, Apple Grant was under a lot of, like, contractual pressure. They probably couldn't come back for the last ten books But that was what they needed to do if they wanted to end this series in this huge way. Like, endings are super hard. It's much easier to ask questions than answer them. Like, it's very hard to resolve problems that you've created. And they needed to write it. Maybe it still would have been, like, had problems. But this is not good enough for the series that I love. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it's going to go in the next two books. Maybe there'll probably be other stuff that I'm like no, that's just bad writing, or that's bad plotting, or that's stupid. But maybe there'll also be a lot of like really earned satisfying stuff. I don't know. But this is definitely making me realize why I checked out so hard at the end of this series, because it's like half nonsense. Yeah, that's correct. That's like a good, I don't know. I'm I'm worried. I'm, <laughs> this book made me worried about kind of the things that you were bringing up, Jenny. Yeah. Because I remembered the like skeleton of the ending a lot more than you but the execution is pretty bad and so i'm kind of expecting that 
Apple Grant will turn it around in the last couple of books. I hope so. At least somewhat. Yeah. But like... They're, they're not going to make it worse, right? Like, right, right, right. Knock but, on something. But, like, but don't because of the mic. I don't know. Yeah. There Thanks, Greg. I felt like a lot of whiplash while reading this book. Mm-hmm, because like yeah. there were a lot of things that I liked in theory that were like written poorly enough that I was like, oh, this isn't actually satisfying in the way that I want it to be. And then there were some parts that were genuinely good and moving. Yeah, there and were then, some like, really good parts. My memory of the Cassie decision was like very much based around this book and not mm. book 50, which was a huge surprise to me. But then like, We'll talk about it, but at the end, it's just like Axe basically comes to the conclusion that Cassie was right, and it's completely unjustified. It's and so it's unjustified. Like, that must have that must have been like inceptioned into my brain a little bit, just that like that's where the narrative wanted us to go. But you know, I, I very much I feel like I came away from the ending with strong headcanons about how and why the characters were acting the way they did. Mm. That just like it's not here in this book. Yeah, but I don't know. I I think. The more optimistic way to put it is that I do think the outline of this book was strong, but I yeah. really thought the ghostwriting was for bad. Mo- for the most part. So we'll talk more about it. So speaking of the outline, should I tell everyone what happened in this book? Please. Okay. Good luck. So the book starts, Axe, Rachel, and James, as we will recall, the head of the new auxiliary Animorphs, are flying around doing recon over the city. Since everyone's been staying in the Horkjir Valley, they don't really know what's going on. Turns out their city has become incredibly militarized by Yerks, and Yerks are herding everyone into subway entrances. Yes, there are subway entrances in this city. I'm sorry, I I intended to not make that a thing in the summary, and maybe I'll just cut it. So Axe is like, we should go back and tell Jake, and Rachel and James are like, no, let's investigate! And so Rachel and James carry the day, and they go and have a fight in a subway tunnel with some uh, controller birds who attacked them from the sky because Yerks are more capable now. And there's an incident where they're, one of the birds is like, no, please don't kill me. I'm so close. And Axe is like, so close to what? And they're like, I'm so close to becoming an Othlet. And it's unclear whether it's that the Yerk morphed or the controller body morphed. I don't really know. But there's this like glimpse of like, oh, some Yerks want this. So unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that Yerk dies anyway. Rachel does some more recon they find out that the Yerks are extending subway tunnels into the Yerk pool. The Taxons are digging them because Taxons are real good at that. So they go back and tell the other Animorphs and the Animorphs are like, this is terrible. They're like herding control, like humans into the Yerk pool by thousands, just making more controllers all the time. We have to stop this. They'll just take over every city in the world this way otherwise. And because they have all these train tunnels going in, they're like, what if we just put explosives on a train and blow up the Yerk pool? And Cassie's like, no, that's a terrible idea. You'll kill all these people. And they're like, maybe we can tell the people to leave. But yeah, you're right. It's still kind of dangerous. And and Cassie and Jake have a tense altercation. And finally, Cassie tells the group what she did at the end of book 50, which was let Tom run away with the morphing cube so that Jake wouldn't kill him. And she's like, I don't really know why. And everyone's like, how could you? And she's like, I don't know. It felt right in the moment, but now I think it was stupid. And Axe is like, this is, wow, this is ridiculous. And he hates Cassie a lot. So Axe is really torn because it turns out he's been sneaking away from the camp to use his Z-Space transponder, which we saw him carrying as a raccoon, to secretly communicate with Andalite leadership. (gasps) I know. It was really shocking. That was the sound that I made, Ted, when I found out. That was not the sound I made. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> <Beep>! <laughs> I 
<laughs> there are a lot of swear words in my notes this week, you guys. That's understandable, and I appreciate it. So Andalite High Command doesn't think much of human resistance, and Axe has been, like, trying to talk them up, but Andalite High Command is like, yeah, they're going to, like, fall apart at this point. They're just humans and children, whatever. And Andalite High Command's orders for Axe is that he keep the Animorphs from doing too much harm to the Yerks, because they want the Yerks to keep funneling all of the Yerks to Earth so that the Andalites can show up and quarantine the planet. And Axe is like, yeah, okay, they're going to quarantine this planet? That's never going to work. And he's thinking to himself... There are so many humans. Humans are so hardy. If the Yerks end up with all these human host bodies, they're not going to be containable. They're, ju- they're just not. And Andalites are really going to have to destroy the planet once they have all like most of the Yerks on it. And that's probably the Andalites' plan. He- he's like, yeah, they're never going to write that down. They're never going to say it out loud. But like, no way that's not what they're thinking. They're going to destroy Earth. Quarantine is the first step to genocide, he says. So he hasn't told the Andalites that the Yerks have the morphing power. He just, like, he he didn't want them to think even less of human resistance. He hasn't figured out how or when to tell them. So Cassie has this revelation that she gave the morphing cube away, and Axe is like, I really should have told them. Oh man, is there anything Cassie can tell me that will make me feel better about this decision and not like she just betrayed everything my brother did for them because he's the one who trusted them with this morphing cube. So he goes to talk to Cassie and Cassie's like, yeah, okay, it wasn't really just a senseless impulse. I I just haven't been brave enough to say this to anyone. The thing is that the Yerks need bodies and morphing will give them bodies. And if they have this ability, maybe they won't need to be parasites anymore. Because she's seen this with like Aftran. She knows there are other people in the resistance who don't want to be enslaving sapient beings. So Axe is like, I mean, I guess I feel a little better about that, but it still seems bad. And he has this great conversation with Tobias that I'm sure we'll talk about where Tobias is like, yeah, I don't hate anyone. I don't know. It's I feel like we've been too absolutist and maybe there are possibilities. And, you know, he has some hopeful stuff to say. I love Tobias. I, know. I love him so much. That was my whole note. I have like three different versions in that section where I'm just like, I love Tobias. I love him so much. <laughs> He's wonderful. So Axe does not tell Andalite war control or whatever that the humans gave the morphing power to the Yerks. Instead, he decides to help the other Animorphs with this plan to blow up the Yerk pool. The Animorphs have for some reason decided that doing this requires committing all of their people. We'll talk about it. So with the parents, they go to a crew of National Guardsmen who are doing something by the side of a road. And the parents pretend to be lost campers. And so the National Guardsmen take them in their trucks into their, like, base. And the Animorphs are like, yes, they didn't even search the trucks. This is great, because we're all there as animals. Because if they'd searched, they definitely would have noticed the fleas or whatever. Not doing commentary. (laughs) So they get into this base. There are 12 warehouses. They're like, we know from, like, internet research that they have explosives. We can use those explosives to pull up the yerk pool. Let's search. So they all split up, take out all the guards at all the warehouses, and find the warehouse that has the explosives in it. They load the explosives into a truck. Fortunately, there are actual human adults driving the trucks, and uh, yeah, we would not want Marco driving a truck full of explosives. That's how the Animorphs adds. Jenny, no spoilers. (laughs) Unfortunately, when they pick up the explosives, an alarm goes off, and a bunch of National Guard soldiers, etc., run towards the entrance to the base so that the Animorphs can't get out. So they drive these trucks up to the gate, and Rachel and Naomi and Axe are in a truck together, 
Rachel's like, we just have to keep going through the soldiers. And Naomi, Rachel's mother, is like, uh, no, you'll kill them. We can't do that. And Rachel puts her foot on her mother's foot to keep the gas down and, like, gets control of the wheel. And Axe has to, like, defuse the situation and be like, ah, Jake gave an order to stop. And it's all kind of disturbing. And then Jake's truck does stop and Jake gets out to talk to the National Guard captain, leader. And the car's like, oh, kid, you're in trouble. And Jake's like, actually, they're aliens. Look, my boy Axe here is an alien. And the National Guard captain is like, no, no, no. I mean, I heard the governor's announcement, but then I caught orders from my superior that that was just a hoax. And uh, she's off like, you know, off on a mental health vacation or something. And Jake's like, no, no, no. It's real aliens. And the captain's like, oh, no, this is terrible, but I have orders. And, and then Rachel's mom steps in and is actually really cool. And before they'd been like, yeah, lawyers seem kind of useless, but it turns out that... Naomi saved this guy's son from, I don't know, some kind of charge that like the guy was going to quit his job to help keep defending his son from this charge, which is kind of weird. But anyway, so she's the reason that this guy is still in this job and seems like he's a great leader. So Axe is like, oh, maybe lawyers aren't useless. And Rachel and her mom have a really like teary reconciliation, which seems like it's kind of nice. But anyway, the captain is like, oh, I get it. Okay, my superiors are probably evil aliens. I guess I should help you guys. And so he lends them a couple trucks and uh, also some guards people. And they go into the city with the explosives and carry the explosives down into the subway where like the Yerks are hurting like a bunch of people in like pajamas and stuff because it's the middle of the night and now they're just rounding people up from their houses. So the Anwars wait for a train to arrive and have to fight some controllers who start morphing. They wait until the controllers are fully morphed to fight them because that is how fair play works in war. So they do win against the controllers and Axe has this thing where he thinks Cassie is dead and uh, there are all these dead wolves but they're controller wolves and it turns out Cassie's fine and he's like oh I don't hate her yay and then they need to send three people into the yerk pool with the explosives to arm them and like detonate them and everything no I don't know why it's three so Jake wants to go and they're like no Jake you're too important and Rachel wants to go and Jake's like no I even though Cassie had this like lapse in judgment I still trust her judgment more than anyone else's so I'm going to send her it's like the next best thing to my going myself. And Axe volunteers because he feels guilty about being a traitor both to the Andalites and the Andalites. He has betrayed everyone at this point. It's it's pretty bad for him. He's like, hey, if I die, then that won't matter. And Marco goes because, in Jake's words, he'll enjoy the ride. So they get on the train with all the explosives and they set them up and... They're not going to set the detonator to go until they reach the yerk pool because they have decided that they're going to give everyone five minutes to get out. Five whole minutes? This five minutes is the magic number where the yerks won't have time to disarm the explosives, but everyone will have time to get out. Any other number would be wrong. So they're driving the train. Marco is driving the train. Doesn't know how to use the brakes, so it's a rough ride. I was so glad Marco's bad driving came back again. It is my favorite. And some hork controllers show up and uh, get electrocuted from a live wire, and um, they successfully get the explosives into the yerk pool. The train is going way too fast at that point, so it goes off the tracks and explodes into the air and lands in the yerk pool itself. Axe is, like, under the sludge, but, like, gets up and demorphs. They've all, like, morphed insects and stuff that will withstand the crash, I guess. 
Cassie has to pull a yerk out of her ear because one has understandably slithered in there because she was a human in the yerk pool. Uh, there are a bunch of yerks dead. Everyone is in a panic because, oh my goodness, train crash. They don't realize yet that it was intentional. So Cassie starts shouting and somehow makes herself heard. And they all get the message that this train is going to explode in less than five minutes. And so they're all running out and, you know, everyone's evacuating the Animorphs are freeing the human controllers who are in, or the humans who are in cages because they're involuntary controllers and their yurks are in the pool. And some other humans help them do that. It's unclear whether they are with the resistance or just don't want these humans to die. And who knows? Kind of nice. And then Visser One shows up as like a scary monster in the pool and is like, I will destroy you all. You'll never prevail. And Marco's like, yeah, that train is about to blow up. And Visser 1 is like, oh, nope, and just exits. And that's it for Visser 1 in this book. And then, contrary to all my narrative expectations, the train just blows up and nothing goes wrong. And Marco and Cassie and Axe are able to escape. They fly out of there along with a lot of controllers. It's unclear how many died, but they they get above ground and they see that the center of the city is collapsing. Buildings are just falling in because this huge hole underneath the city just got blown up. And there are some upset Yerk spaceships in the sky. And yeah, it seems like, you know, Yerk's just suffered a huge blow. And there's sort of the expectation like, okay, there are probably a ton of new human controllers right now because they were ferrying so many people into the Yerk pool. But three days from now, probably a lot of those Yerks will be dead because they don't have any way to feed these huge numbers of Yerks that they've now put in human bodies. So it's a huge victory for the Animorphs, but they all feel really crappy about it because they had to kill a lot of innocent people to make it happen. And Axe reflects on the humans who are helping other humans out of cages and is like, yeah, humans are awesome. I totally side with them. This was the right choice. And Cassie was right. The end. Okay. I want to come back to my overall thoughts on this book. So much awesome stuff happens in this book. Like, there's so many good elements. And I just yes. wish it had been let's written a little better. Let's start with those. <laughs> the positive stuff? Yes. Let's start with the positive. Great. You can just be quiet for this part. Don't worry. <laughs> I no, of course, feel free to chime in. Two yes. positive No, things. so, okay. First, I would like to say, Gray, all the way back in episode 43, when they had the plan to blow up the Yerk Pool for the first time, and th- there was like brief discussion about creating a sinkhole that would destroy the city and then they were like oh no taylor taylor it'll be fine that whole episode i was like i kept being like but they're gonna blow up the city and i'm being like oh wait no actually that was something that came from a later book so i'm glad <laughs> i that had I no idea <laughs> i'm glad that i didn't overplay the hand there but it finally happens they yeah. blow up the yerk pool they do that's so it's like the kind of thing that i should have expected but was not waiting for yeah. Like, of course, they they needed to blow up the... Like, they've been trying since book one to attack the Yerk Pool. They've failed so many times, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes not so much. And, yeah. of course, this was, like, the big target that they needed to take down. Yeah, I'm really surprised. I mean, I think I have in my, like, prediction notes that that happens in one of the last four books and then just, oh, like, nice. didn't know which one it was going to happen in. But, yeah, uh-huh. it's one of those things I definitely should have predicted because... They, they need to do it. And they did. Good job, you guys. I guess. <laughs> well, I think the, the I guess part is what I love so much about it. Because, so one, in terms of accelerating towards an ending, I really like how we go from the public finds out to they blow up the city in one book. Yeah. Because it, it really does feel like the tension is well calibrated. Mm. That once you get to this point... 
things are just going to keep escalating, right? You're not going to have this like long drawn out period where they can do anamorphsy missions, mm-hmm. except the cities under, you know, martial law or whatever, right? right like, right. Yeah. they, I totally buy the like, we have one last mission, we're gonna and another thing that I love about this book is the dynamic of all 23 Animorphs and their families go on a big mission together. They're mostly fight. They're mostly fighting against innocent humans, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are like all these new twists on the Animorphs yeah. dynamic and the overall arc of the Animorphs are fraying at the seams, and then they come together for this like really you know glorious last stand, and mm-hmm. they manage to put aside their differences to to do one final job, and it works is like really really satisfying. And then of course it's undercut right at the end by them being like. Yeah, we just blew up our city. Marcos says something thickly at the end, which is like the perfect word for it. He's like, this is our greatest victory. And I've never felt more depressed in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's like Animorphs in a nutshell. It's like, yeah. it's so good. Yeah. So like, there's so many pieces of this that are on paper. Very good. It's just like. Fortunately, the whole book's on paper. So that's great, right? <laughs> Right, right, right. It's just no. I think it, yeah. you're right. I mean, we'll we, we'll get into the frustrating stuff at length, I'm sure. But like, I do love the Tobias eye view of the story beats here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think you're right that the outline is good. It's just the execution. I love the idea that we've been waiting for the Yerks to get more aggressive this whole time. We're like, why don't they just infest more people? And now that they've dropped this veil of secrecy, they just are infesting more people, and it's kind of satisfying to see them just being effective. Yeah. Like they're not they haven't been totally like defanged or whatever. They're like they are functioning well as alien conquerors. They're taking over the whole city. Yeah. And you know, the animorphs and everyone have to stop them. It's there were still a lot of things in the outline I had an issue with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't just talk about the good parts. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll come back to like the where do we go from here piece yeah. of it, I guess. Should we talk about the Anwar's decision to blow up the Yerk Pool? Sure. I mean, I really, one of the things that I, I did like about this book is a repeated emphasis on there being no good decision. Mm, yeah. And they never kind of frame it as like the lesser of two evils because they actually, it's not just two choices, right? It's They mm-hmm, have a mm-hmm. wide variety of things that they could do from give up entirely and let the Yerks take over to like annihilate themselves entirely in the course of doing this. And I think for the most part, one of the things I liked was seeing them struggle with those concerns. As a group and individually, we see Axe yeah, doing it, we agree. see Cassie, Tob- even Tobias a little bit, Jake. And I think that's like a really good aspect of the overall theme of how difficult war is. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things yeah. that I think Apple Grant does really well and that we see in this book is too is war is not simple. I mean, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they've talked about this before, like, sometimes it is, sometimes there are Nazis. But like, even then, that whole argument was complicated by the fact that they weren't really Nazis, like Hitler was just some, you know, chauffeur or whatever. So I think it's interesting that they've continued to show that choosing a war is not a simple thing to do. And mm-hmm. that once you're embroiled in a war, there are really no good options mm-hmm. and the question then becomes how can you protect the most people and what does that look like mm-hmm. all of which is to say i think it's probably a good thing that they blew up the york pool 
it is definitely the reasonable next step in the escalation of their battles. And it seems frankly miraculous to me that none of them died in the attempt. None of the the Animorphs died in the attempt. Yeah. It was very much framed as like, these three people are going to go on effectively a suicide mission. And then they were all fine. Also, the title of this book, (laughs) just remind you, is The Sacrifice, which you guys... Stop giving me titles like this. The sacrifice happened in book 50. <laughs> or maybe the sacrifice is Axe's loyalty to the end of uh-huh, uh-huh. I was so annoyed. It's it's great. Why are you giving me a title like this at the very end and then <laughs> still continuing to have this thing where it's like... Plot armor! What is it? Yeah. The thing about blowing up the Yerk Pool, I also really like the the sort of no good choices theme that's that's happening in this book. And I also like the fact that they have a very poor strategic understanding of what's going on. <laughs> and I find yeah. that they are justified in escalating the attack to the degree that they do because they have no idea how bad it is now and how much quickly it's getting worse. And it's sort yeah. of like the their alternatives are running out. We learned that it's been mm-hmm. days since the incident with the governor, but the media response to that first announcement was the Yerks kind of did what you would expect and like sent the governor, quote unquote, off to rehab Mm, and mm -hmm. issued orders to the National Guard to say, no, stand down, come to the city. This is all a conspiracy. And like none of that happens on screen, but that's all kind of like plausible. So they they made their pitch to like, let's work with the human authorities. And it seems to have backfired between 51 and 52. Okay, I know I said, let's start with good stuff, but I'm sorry. I was so mad about this. They have this huge thing in 51 where they go to such lengths to secure the governor's safety and confidence in them. And then what? They just drop her like a hot potato. Like they don't guard her. They don't try to smuggle her away. She would be awesome in this camp in the mountains. Let's bring her there. There are a bunch of parents who can't morph. Like it's not like she'd be the only adult in that situation. Bring the governor there. Get some National Guard troops that you know aren't controllers. Like a way to safety. I'm very mad at the Animorphs for their logistical thinking, but I'm also so mad at the series because at this point, we've talked about this spiraling out. Like these aren't self-contained adventures anymore. And of course, they're like short books written one per month, which I can't even imagine that pace. But like at this point, it kind of has to be one book that's divided up, right? It has to be a continuous narrative. So if you have this, you spent a whole book on the governor and then a few pages later, you're like, oh, what happened to her? Like, you can't do that. You have to, <laughs> like, at least imply that they worked really hard. But like, you know, we just didn't see the episode where they lost control of the situation and the governor was taken. Like, that could have been a failure on their part. But it's not just Marco's like, hey, where is our friend, the governor? And they're like, oh, gee, we don't know. Guess the Yerks got her. Like, you can't just write it off so, like that. It had yeah. to have more... It had to continue to carry the narrative weight it had. You're, yeah, absolutely right. I think the line is that when Marco brings it up, Jake is basically like, I've got a feeling we won't be getting any more help there, which is like absolutely the worst thing to say narratively. And like we do get the third time the governor comes up in the book, we get the backstory, which is that like when they're actually talking to the National Guardsmen, it's like, oh, the governor, she had a breakdown. She's in rehab. Like there's this military response. If that exposition had come to us in the first chapter of the book, it would have it would have still been really frustrating. But at least it would have 
acknowledged the weight of the previous book in a more meaningful way. Or they could have done a thing where it's like, we've been trying to get in touch with the governor, but our lines of connection have been broken, which would have still, again, been very frustrating. Yeah, we tried to protect her, but she insisted on doing this thing. And Sure. Yeah, there are so many ways they could have handled it that weren't just like, oh, yeah, remember that? Huh, guess she's lost. The way that those narrative pieces were sort of dropped in did make me think that the ghostwriter had not read the previous book. Oh, and then certainly in the not. editing process, they were like, oh, right. We had this like really important plot point. I guess we should like <laughs> oh, mention it somewhere, which was like, I understand how the series was written, but that still was like <laughs> very, very frustrating. And also, I know I said this last book, but I'll just say it again. If you had gotten the governor on your side 30 books ago, <laughs> there wouldn't have been so many Yerks in positions of authority who could have cut those lines of communication and taken over the media mm-hmm. and like gotten the mm-hmm. National Guard. So maybe you should have told somebody earlier. So credit to the ghostwriter of 51. I bet the governor and Collins were not as awesome in the outline <laughs> as in execution. Mm. So it may be that those those minor characters because like <laughs> obviously book 51 was not re- like finished. By the time book 52 was written. Right. Right. No, like there's not. no way the outlines were all like six months ahead. And so like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it would have been all back and forth. Yeah. But, but Apple Grant wrote these outlines and Apple Grant could oh, have yeah, included yeah, yeah, yeah. the governor in this outline. She exactly. could have had like narrative agency. This isn't the part of the series where you're like, well, Homicron showed up. Now they're gone. Like you have to have some continuity. And it's so hard. There are so many threads. They're trying really hard to maintain some of the threads. And some of them are just, like, too wispy to justify their own existence. Like the blind girl, Elena, who turns out now is living in the Hertfordshire Valley. Great. We were like, she'll never come back. Or maybe she'll come back. It turns yeah. out she'll come back, but in the least significant way possible. The way they described that was, like, she had family. She was noted. Like, her absence was noted. And now uh-huh. she's, like, sad. But here... <laughs> One paragraph. Also, one paragraph. not fighting with them? She has the morphing power. Why is she not one of the auxiliary anamorphs now? What? Oh, great question. Do you know who else <laughs> has morphing power and is not fighting is Lauren. Because uh-huh, they uh-huh. decided that she doesn't want need to use that. Which, why? <laughs> why? Just going back to my point about the anamorphs needing to escalate things. The other thing that I really appreciate about the plan to blow up the Yerk pool is when they first bring it up, it's kind of like... Toby, Marco, Rachel, like, yeah, let's do it. Cassie, Tobias, like, no, let's not do it. And, you know, there's, we'll talk about how Cassie's confession plays into all of these dynamics or whatever. But they're basically like, this makes a ton of sense strategically. If it can work, it would be a huge victory, but at what cost? And they talk about the costs. And I think it's really important to me that they come down on the side of, we will go through with this. But telling people, trying to give the controllers enough time to clear out of the Yerk pool Mm -hmm. so that we're just killing the Yerks and we're saving as many hosts as possible really makes them better than, maybe not totally meaningfully so, but to me it makes them better than just terrorists, right? They're not like business as usual at the Yerk pool, train appears, explodes, kills everyone. They're like, they make an announcement like, hey, you have five minutes to get out. It seems like it wasn't enough, right? It seems like still many, 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 many people, innocent people died, and that was a risk. But the fact that they risked the the lives of three of the main Animorphs 
and stuck to that plan in order to give people a chance of escape feels like the Animorphs being good guys in a way that if they had gone with like Marco's original plan, it would have felt more like Mm. a betrayal of what they stand for. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have been terrorists anyway, because their goal in blowing up the York pool wasn't like cause chaos, kill civilians, scare people. Like it was, it was a military target. It just, it's so complicated because there's no clear separation of military and civilians in York society. The Yorks are embedded in human society in a way that you can't separate Yorks and humans. Like, It's a military target, but not a clean one. Well, the distinction I was getting at is more kind of the, they're not, they're not, their goal is not to terrorize the controllers that were there and make them run in fear of- And their goal isn't to maximize damage. The Animorphs, right. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they show up and Cassie, however she does it, projects her voice to say like, look, we're just, you know, we're giving you a chance to flee. Mm -hmm. There are like- I don't want to harp on the Cassie was right thing too much, but I think she she at least extends the hand mm-hmm. to people in the Yerk pool to be like, hey, let's work together, right? Mm-hmm. And some people accept that offer, right? Like if they just blew everybody up, every single Yerk is going to be like, oh my God, the Andalites are just like, it, it's mm-hmm. they're just as bad. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. for all that they're sacrificing, for all that mm-hmm. they're sacrificing to try and not become the Yerks, uh-huh. doing it this way allows people who survive the wreckage to say, well, you know what? They were trying to You're save right. people there up to the last minute. There might be a hope of alliance there or a hope of reconciliation more so than if they'd just blown it up wholesale without any warning. And yeah. I mean, I, I probably there were very few survivors, if any, or the people who decided, who heard that it message like and there were a lot decided of to leaving, stay. So, right. Yeah. But I mean, the whole city, the whole city collapses. Like, yeah. I, I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, I'm not really sure that I'm giving Cassie credit for her good PR skills in this particular <laughs> instance. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not good PR. But I mean, I think it's, it may not have a difference in consequence, really. But I, I the moment that really hit home for me is when Marco and Axe and Cassie are on the train. Marco's like, maybe I should just set the timer now to give us more of a chance of escaping. And Cassie and Axe are both like, we said we'd give them five minutes. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. And Marco kind of, he doesn't bicker about it. He's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Right? Like that sort of commitment to following through on the hopeful side of their plan, even if it's totally misguided and doesn't have good outcomes. I I feel like that's, that makes me more in the Animorphs corner than I might've been otherwise. Yeah. I think you're totally right about that. And it makes them be more consistent with their insistence earlier in the book that they were going to do what they had to do, but also try not to become like the Yerks, kind of ruthless Mm -hmm. and and brutal killers. But I think to some extent, you have to have been in that train car for it to make a wider difference. Yeah. Because the survivors aren't going to know that they like... We said we'd give them five minutes and we gave them five minutes. Like, they don't know that that was a point of discussion. They are not involved in this conversation. They have not read this book. So I just, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it... That's true. Maybe it might not be clear to everyone. Yeah. I want to take issue with the, uh, we fight the Yerks, we don't become them thing. Yeah, great. Good. Do you know what the Yerks do? What makes the Yerks so evil? They crawl into people's brains and take them over, like enslave them and control their lives. Yeah. At no point, any time in this book, was there ever a danger of the Animorphs doing that? Like, I understand that they want to maintain moral integrity. That is a goal that I admire. It is a great goal. I'm glad they have it. 
I'm very glad that they tried to clear people out of the year pool. I think they probably did save a lot of people, even while they also killed a lot of people. But they were never at any risk of becoming the Yerks. That is a terrible tagline. Like, just boiling the Yerks down to like, oh yeah, evil is like very flattening of like actually a complex civilization, biological problem. insist on over and over in this book that like not all aliens are bad, not all Yerks are bad. Some of them just like, (laughs) and then you're like... Except all the Yerks are evil. But like, <laughs> not all of them, but like all of the Yerks are evil. What are you talking about? There's also, that's, that's also a good point. Yeah. The, the moment that really bothered me was when, was when the, the Animorphs are in the subway and the controllers are all morphing and someone, probably Marco, I don't know, or Rachel, was like, let's attack them now while they're still morphing. And Jake's like, no, we fight the Yerks. We don't become them. We'll wait until they're all finished morphing. So you can have a fair fight with these people who've come to your planet to enslave you? Like, that is that is ludicrous. I'm sorry. That is not... It is not a Yerkish thing to, like, try to fight your enemies with the weapons at your disposal. Like, that, that has nothing to do with being Yerks. You could have just fought them. You are the only resistance fighters on this planet. You have to use the tools at your disposal. You have to take the win that you can get. You're about to blow up the Yerk pool. What does it matter if you let these controllers finish morphing before you attack them? Except that maybe then you'll be able to blow up the Yerk pool, which is your goal. That was such, such a fake noble stance. And Ed has a similar thing earlier in the book in the first subway tunnel fight Mm. where he's one of the, one of the controllers is morphing or demorphing or something and Rachel kills him mid-morph yeah, yeah. and Axe is like that seems like a terrible t- way to die halfway through a morph in the dark. It was one of many times that I was very annoyed with Axe because seriously dude, three seconds on either side did not matter one way or the other this person was still going to die in the dark like yeah, I, I'm not saying that's a fun way to die killed by a bear in the dark, no no, terrible but like, <laughs> that's not like your false morality throughout this book i was so annoyed with axe and it that was one of the first times so yeah it's that same like what yeah i like that moment a little more just because it felt more of a piece with like we have to do terrible things in this war but he was also using it to be like rachel is terrible and unhinged and i hated that theme so yeah yeah. on the point about the defeat the yurks don't become them i feel like the and this is going back to something you were saying earlier great like the Yerks basically stand in for, like, Nazis or, like, absolute evil monolith bad guy in this book a lot more. Which um, is weird, because it's like, this book is deliberately trying to be like, not all Yerks are like this. Some Yerks would choose a different thing. It's very back and forth about it. Right, right. So, but I, I feel like there are a lot of times, like, Rachel has some line about how the Yerks are now going for, like, quantity over quality of hosts. <laughs> and this idea of, like, people being rounded up on trains oh, and sent to their very... death is, like... Of, yeah, you concentration know. camp, World War Two. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So it's and like they say that, right? He's, yeah, he yeah, says yeah. this reminds me of World War Two, old footage from World War Two. They even invented trains in this city for plot reasons, but maybe also yeah, for that like, yeah. thematic reasons. Right, right. So that, but I feel like that imagery and that overall idea of we're just we're fighting this absolutely despicable bad guy who's like despicable in all these generic ways and not necessarily grounded in the series or who the Yerks have been. And to your point, like mm-hmm. the the rules of engagement are not a particularly evil thing about Yerks. No, it's not like, oh yeah, these Yerks are fine, except that, you know, they'll fight you when your back is turned. Like, no, that's not the problem. Yeah. And I, 
I'm not super attached to that point of view. I think that I think that what the book, the part of the book that I liked was that the Animorphs start the book all torn apart and they do come mm-hmm. together for the mission. Yeah. And there are some really nice character beats there. But like mm-hmm. doing it through this lens of defeat the Yurks, don't become them feels really like a lot of nonsense like you were saying and maybe we'll talk about some of the more specific moments i don't know i'm not opposed to there being something worth saving there but i don't see it i do like the way they try to thread the needle on this blowing up the yerk pool thing it's a very complex moral decision that they have to make and like you were saying gray like they don't have they have a lot of options but not a lot of good ones at this point And I appreciate that they have to escalate in this way, but they do try to do it. Like there's real like moral meat there to like sink Mm -hmm. your teeth into. And the sort of tagline, defeat the Yorks, don't become them, feels like it's trying to sum that up in a way that doesn't work. But there is actual like interesting content there. Yeah. One of the things that I found kind of had a a little bit more meat to it than we've seen in the past is learning more about the Yorks plan. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Which for both good and bad reasons, I want to talk about. Because I think this is the first time that we've heard a summary, a blunt summary of the Yerks' plan for the future. Axe says the Yerks' plan is to use Earth as a hub planet. Hub planet! Hub planet. Did we know that? Like, I don't... Nope. I I love it. New term of art. Hub planet. Hub planet. Here they can potentially acquire millions of host bodies. A massive force of human controllers will enable them to effectively push out into other galaxies. So acquire a lot of humans use their own technology, go and conquer more uh, more worlds, um, which is new, I think. And kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting escalation of the Yerks perspective, right? We've been very focused on Earth, but it turns out, no, it's, it's much bigger than that. So that's cool. But on the negative side of things, there's also when Axe is talking to the Andalites, they, he has this whole extended bit about how, when they're talking about quarantine, he says the idea is that once they've quarantined the Yerks on Earth, the Andalites can form, can make a truce. They can negotiate with them and, and mediate a peaceful symbiosis between human and humans mm. and Yerks. Sure. <laughs> right, sure. Uh, so if they quarantine, and this is the quarantine is the first step towards genocide, they're going to, they could, they could annihilate the Earth and all the Yerks on it. The Yerk conquest of the galaxy would stop here on Earth, he says. Okay, couple questions that I have, because I was under the impression that this was only one of the outposts that the Yerks are currently taking over. If I remember correctly, it's not even the most important, and I know that because the Council of Thirteen was sending was uh, focused on the Anadi homeworld, and the Andalite forces were also focused there because that was deemed a much more important battle than Earth. Ooh, but you know what? What? So the Yerks are having success here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Visser 1's like, you know, talking a good game. Finally defeated the old Visser 1 who was like pushing for a certain type of fight on Earth. And now he's escalating. I bet he has the Council of 13 in his pocket a little more right now. I bet they are funneling more Yerks towards Earth. And I bet what the Andalites aren't telling us is that they went to the Anadi homeworld. Turns out the Yerks hadn't had a lot of success there and were just trying to make it look like they would to keep the fleet away from Earth. Turns out the Andalites did the dumb thing, and now they're trying to cover it up by being like, well, now we can just quarantine Earth and it'll be great. It'll be fine. We can totally handle this. I actually have a slightly different take on it. Yeah. But I like that I like that theory. My theory yeah. about where the Andalites were coming from, 
I guess I'm imagining straight up evil genocidal Andalite thinking. Mm-hmm. If basically someone on the Andalite War Council has been planning to concentrate as many Yurks on Earth as possible and blow it up, and that's the end game for the war. Mm-hmm. So we saw this whole thing where Visser One was on the Anadi homeworld, and something happened off screen where they failed and. You know, mm-hmm. we were speculating maybe Visser 2 was also eliminated, right? Like, the Animorphs are trying to communicate back to the Andalites. Oh, there are, like, Dracon beams on the moons or whatever, right? But what if the Andalites have been foiling Yurk plans throughout the galaxy in the hopes that the Yurks oh. would eventually concentrate everything on Earth like so that, that they can swoop in and blow it up, right? Uh-huh. So it actually, I feel like what we learn about the Andalites is they could show up at Earth almost at any time and try and save it. But they're not been, interested in that. They've been holding yeah. back because if once the once Visser 3 becomes Visser 1 and starts the whole takeover, they'll say, oh, well, then more pool ships are going to show up, more Yurk pools, we'll just blow up Earth. Game over. That makes a lot of sense. I also love the idea that the Andalites are in sort of the different idea. The Andalites are just getting increasingly desperate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. They, they're like, okay, maybe we can just throw a species to the Yurks as hosts. There are a ton of humans. They're great hosts. They're not that, you know, they're they're very capable, but they don't have blades on their arms. What if we just let them have the humans? Maybe they'll just be happy on Earth and we can just end this whole war. Like maybe they're Andalite like appeasers. Right. Well, and that may also be based on one of the Andalite high command being a controller, right? Don't, don't we think yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So that's a big not, not, that. Maybe not yeah. a controller, but a traitor of some kind, like working with the Yurks. Right, traitors so, on the homeworld from 8 and 18. Yeah, because yeah, that was a thing that I kept thinking of when Axe was talking to who cares whatever his command is, <laughs> the other guy's name is, which we'll get to. Yeah, I um, never memorized that one. I don't care. But that was one of the things I was thinking was like, you have a lot of faith considering we know that at least a few of these Andalites are not looking out for the best interest of Earth, certainly, or mm-hmm. Andalites in general. I, I want to come back really quickly to one of the things that Jenny said about how maybe because Visser 1 is being so successful, like the Yurks are more willing to funnel resources to the Earth battle. Something that I feel Ava maybe could have mentioned a couple books ago is her theory during the Oh, council yeah. that she says, knowing something about your high c- council, I'm thinking it's likely Visser 1's been warned that one more major attack on a site of concentration or one more major disaster like what happened on the aircraft carrier or one more public announcement by the governor calling for resistance just might mean the end of his domination here. It might mean that the Yerks would uh, decide to move their base of operations to some other planet. And I was like, did you want to mention that earlier? Because that seems important. Okay, it oh, also yeah. seems really unlikely. Like, someone else makes a public announcement about Yerks. Like, no, they're super entrenched here. They're doing great. The only resistance is, like, this handful of morph-capable kids. They're not going to be like, oh, someone else made an announcement. Let's leave. Like, no. I well, don't know. Okay, so we didn't actually talk about this in terms of is blowing up the Yerk pool a good plan. But I actually like... So I feel like there are a lot of versions of the endgame still in play as of the end of this book. So I don't mm-hmm. wanna I don't wanna tip the series hand or anything. But I, I feel like we get like Cassie's idea, we get Ava's idea here of like, what if we save Earth but not the galaxy? Right? Like we get the Andalites idea, which is kill everyone, right? Like you get you have a bunch of these competing hypotheses for how the war could get resolved, mm-hmm. all kind of introduced at once. So slightly frustrating that it hasn't been there hasn't been more foreshadowing in the series. And I think 
obviously the the final 10 books would be a lot more coherent if they had just tipped <laughs> their hands sooner yeah, in a lot of ways. A plan yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know how much of that, I, we can talk about that separately, but it's a great justification for escalation if you think one more big boom and maybe the Yerks will run away. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe that's naive, uh, but I do appreciate that as a possibility being thrown on the table. Yeah, and I think they have to do something to interrupt what the Yerks are doing with these subway tunnels. It seems real bad. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to Axe a little bit, I was I was a little bummed that we got the theme again of like Axe being like, where's my loyalty? Oh, okay, it's to the Animorphs. It's a little bit like how all of Tobias's books, except maybe the last one, have been about like, oh no, I'm a bird. Am I a bird? Am I a boy? Oh wait, I'm both. It's fine. And like Axe always seems to have this thing where he is like, oh, but I'm an Andalite. And also I like care so much about these humans and fight alongside them. Okay, I'll side with the humans. And like, on the one hand, I was like, okay, we're doing this again. And didn't we settle this? But like, I guess on the other hand, it's like actually fairly realistic that that is not a conflict that would ever be like peaceably settled within him. And also that things have changed now that he can contact the Andalites. Like he's getting actual orders from Andalites. It's this new pressure. I still feel like based on earlier books, he should have been like, no, I've decided where my loyalties lie. Like that would have been really cool to see actually him like, just outright manipulating Andalite leadership and being like, I decided where my loyalties lie books ago or, you know, months ago. Mm. And it's to you, Jake. Mm. And like, I think that would have been a more novel take on it, actually. Although I guess we saw that in 38 already. But we saw that in 38 already. We saw that in 38 already. So, but then how has he regressed? Why are we still having this conversation? (laughs) Also, like, again, why are we trusting Andalite High Command? Like, we've had that conversation. I just... I it seems like Axe did wasn't get it. in his defense. Like, it, he was, Andalite High Command was like, and then we quarantine. And Axe is like, you're not going to quarantine. <laughs> yeah. And he but- also is like, he, I think he knows that there are valuable resources there. And so he is trying to convince them to come to Earth. And so he's like trying to talk up like humans. But I mean, I don't know. I think but he's he, not though, right? Yeah. Like he, he, at one point he says he's, he feels the need to defend his friends and he's like, that's all they can do right now. And then it's like, oh, well that makes the human seem weak. Just kidding. I guess we'll just go with whatever you guys want to do. And he just goes along with it. But I, it just, I found that the whole conversation with Andalite High Command so enraging because mm-hmm. one, he's betraying the Andalites, the Animorphs again. Yeah. But he's also like, if you are gonna betray them, just do it. Because he like, he gives away some of their stuff, but not the information about the morph cube. And it's like, now you have, this is the worst of all possible worlds. Because the Andalite High Command, if you think that the Andalite High Command is doing the right thing, which you seem to, because you're fine with going along with this stupid quarantine idea, then like, great, then then you're trusting the Andalite High Command, you have shifted your loyalty, your leader is now this dude on uh, in the Andalite High Command. Fine. Do you know how you can be the most effective in supporting Andalite High Command decisions? Giving them the information about the Morph Cube, because they're gonna really need to know that very, very soon. And he regrets not doing that as soon as he has, he finds out that Cassie did it on purpose, and we'll talk about it. But it's yeah. like, you're doing this like weird middle road thing where you're kind of loyal to Jake, but you're kind of loyal to the Andalites. You're not quite sure where you fit. And I was just like, we have, we have already had this conversation. You picked a side. Why are we mm-hmm. having this conversation mm-hmm. again? But also like, if you're going to be a traitor, at least could you be slightly more effective at it? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> 
Okay, I now listening to you talk about this, I'm actually being convinced that Axe's behavior is like pretty reasonable and realistic here. Like, I was furious when he snuck off with this because I thought the Inwars could trust him at this point. Like he snuck off with this Z space transponder and is like secretly contacting Andalite High Command. I was like, no, what has happened to you? But the idea that he would be doing that and he would still be really torn, that he wouldn't be able to even pick a side enough to be really effective for either side, like that seems really plausible. Like, I think he shouldn't have done it in the first place. I think right. he should have been upfront with Jake and the others. I wonder how it started, uh, actually, because at one point he's like watching the Animorph squabble and he's like, relationships were dissolving. And I was like, no, no, just the Jake Cassie one. But okay. He's like, yeah, all these other dire things. I had been warned this would happen. I was like... Oh, you're seeing stuff that's not quite there because the Andalites told you to expect it. And I wonder to what extent he's like, I don't know, been already swayed by them to the extent that now he feels like he needs to keep it a secret. I don't know. I it's, I feel like psychologically I can see how he could have gotten yeah, there. Yeah. And I think it's super frustrating as kind of like a, a retread, right? I do think the stakes are bigger now because like, like you were saying, Gray, if he just betrays them all the way, it's game over for the Animorphs probably, right? Because like- yeah. If the Andalite High Command learns that the Yerks can morph, Earth is blown up ASAP, <gasps> right? Like yeah. that's that oh, would yeah. be game over, right? Oh, yeah. The fleet would and be then, there instantaneously, yeah. all and the then, beams aimed at But Earth. then thinking through what you were saying, Jenny, like when did Axe decide to contact Andalite High Command? Like maybe it was just kind of like an accident. He's fiddling with the Z-Space transponder and like click, there they are. And yeah, there's yeah. a conversation, right? And then he, he gets swayed. He seems very swayable. Right, right, right. Maybe it was that, but like it would be very plausible to me that like he'd be all in on jake and the animorphs and stuff but jake isn't jake anymore right like we've seen him fall apart since like 47 49 50 yeah. if he knew that cassie had betrayed them in this way that would be a great motivation for him <laughs> to go back to the andalites so like you guys. i wish that we had seen him because like, there are reasons for him to be mad at the animorphs Right. So like, why couldn't one of those things have motivated his heel turn? That would be very nice. I just realized the whole thing where Axe has trouble keeping his balance as a human, where he's just, he just falls over like, it's a metaphor, you guys. <laughs> it's it's a metaphor. Uh, I love it. I love <laughs> it. I don't. Using this metaphor since book four. <laughs> I love it. Good job, Animorphs. But I also, <laughs> <laughs> can't believe we didn't realize before all right we got it we got it before the end of the show <laughs> it only took us 50 bucks it's fine i also thought so i will throw this fun fact out here now the ghostwriter for this book wrote 38 48 50 and 52 as her contributions not to the series not a great track record not a great track was record. really the best of the right 38 four. was the best that was also another axe book so this is this is uh axe and estrid then Rachel versus Cryak and David, then Cassie and the Auxiliary Animorphs, and then this book. Okay. So I have a lot of take, I have a lot of speculation here. And like, I feel a little bit bad speculating, like getting into the head of the ghostwriter <laughs> as a way of figuring out things in the series. But yeah, why not? One, one thing that's jumped out to me in particular is that some of the way Axe was interacting with the Animorphs in this book felt a little off. And like, there are a lot of instances of like, you know, the Animorphs aren't quite acting like themselves. Axe is, like, interpreting their body language. Axe is worried that they're suspicious of him. He thinks, like, Jake is maybe giving him a weird look at some point. Cassie's giving him a weird look at some point. A lot of that didn't quite ring true to me in this book. And in 38, that characterization of Axe was absolutely perfect 
for like the long con <laughs> story where the Animorphs fake break up and Axe betrays oh, to the no. Andalites. Hey. And then we and yeah. then we're revealed that like he's he's on the Animorph side all along. So I actually wonder if it's just like this take on Axe is based on him as a fake traitor. Yeah, or just like <laughs> I, I feel I felt like there were things in the writing that I didn't realize until I looked up that it was the same ghostwriter. I was like, oh, this axe does feel a lot like the axe from 38. But in 38, he was kind of like was hiding stuff from the reader yeah. because it, for suspense reasons. And here I kind of felt distanced. He felt aloof in a way that didn't have anything to do with the plot. And a lot of the like the Animorphs having very melodramatic scenes with each other mm, felt mm-hmm. out of character, but there was no narrative reason for that to be the case. Yeah. So I find this take on axe frustrating. I hate it when they do, like, weird books in the 30s that screw with characterization for the next 15 books. Just saying. What a great segue. Can we talk about Rachel? Let's talk about Rachel! This was actually the part of this book that I hated the most. Yeah. Was the characterization of Rachel. And at this point, I feel like, we we talked about this a little bit in the mailbag, that our views on the characters are so shaped by the first 19 books that the intermediate books... I would say the first 30. Even the first 30, sure, yeah. The the books in the 30s and 40s that change their characterization so dramatically feel Feel less real. Yeah, They feel fake. And yet, for recency bias and because, you know, they're trying to weave all of those threads in, those are the aspects of character that we are starting to see more and more regularly. So as, as we were just saying you know, Axe's characterization and, like, his balance between the humans and the Andalites, very, you know, affected by his ability to now communicate with the Andalites. But the Rachel stuff feels like a real departure from what we saw of her earlier on in the series. And from my perspective, part of the problem that I've had is that the Rachel books have really been missing in some of the interiority that we saw in her earlier books, where we really saw her desire to protect the people around her, that the violence and and the kind of warlike attitudes that she had were based not in hatred or a love of war, but Mm -hmm. rather in, in, in loyalty and love of her friends and family and her deep and abiding desire to protect them. Mm-hmm. And I and maybe a little bit of adrenaline rush. Like I'm willing maybe, to buy yeah. that much. Yeah, yeah that and, she, like, and like yeah, exactly. Like yeah. adrenaline rush, and also an an understanding that she is in this group, like uniquely gifted at making tactical decisions in the heat of battle, and willing to take not necessarily take the risks, but like do the thing that needs to get done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in that very practical way. And I feel like that is in my that's what Rachel is to me. Yeah. I want to just I want to just comment on that. So I after I wrote the the 37 that we gave to you Gray, I feel like that like I didn't remember what was going to like I didn't remember the characterization of Rachel from the second half of the series really. And I got a comment from at least one person where like yeah, like the real 37 like it sucks, but I do feel like it sets up Rachel better for like the back half of the series. Mm. And I think that's accurate, but like in a bad way. Like, yeah, not good. Because the Rachel that I was writing very much was growing out of the Rachel in the first half of the series. And the Rachel we're getting now, we've said this before, like, doesn't feel like a cohesive or genuine person, doesn't feel like it's connected to the Rachel we saw before. Like, you do kind of need to take her to that place of just like, 
caricature in order to get where we are now, but it's not good. Hmm. That's interesting. So I don't know if I agree. Oh, nice. Let's complicate it. Yeah. So what we're getting is finally Extreme Rachel from like extreme back half of the series, Rachel, from a character who's not Rachel, right? In a way that we haven't seen except in the brief, like real world moments in Megamorphs 4 and 41, where we saw Rachel like really extremely over the line, but in a way that didn't feel out of character to me. No, that felt fairly reasonable, like upsetting, but reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I actually like almost everything Rachel does in this book as like a... Rachel pushed to her limits type thing. I also feel like the stuff that Rachel went through in 48, as ridiculous as it was, should have, she's got to be letting that pain out in some way. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the idea that she had to murder David and and is going to take this secret, you know, and keep it with her for the rest of her life and never tell the other animorphs what she had to do. Like this, that, that thing that she's carrying with her feels like something that, might cause her to lash out in other ways, right? Like there, there is something here that makes it makes me feel like Rachel could have pivoted towards mm, yeah, the end okay. of the series. All right. However, all the editorializing <laughs> that Axe does, yes. where he's like, he's like, well, we we've always been worried about Rachel, and like here's Rachel just being Rachel because this is who she is. All she that editorializing war. stuff is not justified at all by her actions. And so yeah. yes. like the the moment, the horrifying moment when Rachel in the uncertainty of what's going on is like, let's just run through these National Guard troops and get out of here and move on with the mission. And Axe and Naomi have to step in to stop her. And moments later, Rachel goes to her mom in tears because, I really liked that. because she's yeah. so upset yeah. by like who she's become and how she's been fighting with her mom a lot. Like that's so good. And I really appreciate, like I don't want Rachel to be kind of like, Mary Sue, perfect Rachel, that like she is in book seven. Like, mm. I like the idea that the war grinds her down because I think the war grinds all the animorphs down. And like, mm-hmm. how the war is destroying these characters we love is like a really important theme of the series, right? Yes. So, like, I, I, I don't want to advocate for like Rachel should always be perfect and just about protecting people. I like that she has that dark edge. I just, I just don't like the, I don't like that she is uniquely characterized as like, a bad she person. on the Andalite homeworld, yes. we would have shut exactly. her away. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so everything Axe thinks about her feels way off. But that, yeah. the stuff that actually happens, I don't feel as bad about. I am just not going to let the Mary Sue Perfect Rachel book seven comment go by because I don't think she's a Mary Sue in book seven. I think she's already struggling with violence in a little in a little bit. I think she's a very realistic character in seven. I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it that pejoratively. I guess the thing that I was thinking about is at the end of that book, she says, see you, dad. I'm going to save the world. And you're like, yes, Rachel. <laughs> and Rachel. if it were one continuous, yes, Rachel, for the rest of the yeah, series, that would be legit. that would be yeah. a false note. But I don't I didn't mean to say she was a Mary Sue. I retract yeah. that statement. Nice. OK. <laughs> yeah, I I want to second that. It was really Axe's editorializing about Rachel yeah, that's, that that's frustrated me so much. And also... So my endgame prediction has been that Cassie dies, and I'm becoming increasingly worried that it's Rachel instead. Oh, no. Because What's changing your mind? It is actually the way that she's being characterized by the other Animorphs, um, because they, they're, they're continually kind of harping on this idea of, like, what are we going to do about Rachel? How, how is the war going to end for Rachel? What is that going to look like? And I find that 
annoying Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, wrong-headed in a lot of ways. And as I said, you know, inconsistent with how I think of her. But Axe doesn't say that she would be locked away if she were an Andalite. What he says is, if we were on the Andalite planet, or if she were an Andalite, dot, 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 but she's not. (gasps) And I was like... Wait, but it does say, doesn't he say what happens to Andalites who love war too much? So what he says is, on the Andalite home planet when when a warrior becomes too fond of war he is shunned a warrior should love only the cause not the killing if rachel were an andalite dot 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 but she is not and i am not a human and i was like what is this (laughs) what what does shunned mean like what is what does the dot 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 mean you know i'm i'm increasingly worried that rachel's the one who's going to die and it's going to be justified as a this is the only way the war can stop for rachel is if mm-hmm, she's dead. Mm-hmm. And I am going to be really very upset if that's true because I think it is It is not how I think of Rachel and I think not how she's portrayed. Like we see, again, her reconciliation with her mom is a great example of how Rachel really does have this depth of compassion that has been in many ways tamped down by the necessity of this war. Mm-hmm. And I want her, as I want for all of them, I want them to be in a place where they can, like, be hugged and held and told it's going to be okay. And I worry that part of the characterization is, like, that's just not possible for Rachel. But I think it is, and I'm worried. So I'm curious, you were saying, like, Cassie gets fridged. But you're not saying about that for Rachel. You're saying she might be like, are you talking like executed for war crimes? Or like, what are you worried about? No, 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 no. Um, So still fridged, but this may be just, uh, I may be using the word wrong. I was well, thinking yeah, fridged, fridged usually means like killed for other people's emotions. Other people's emotional maturity. And you don't, so, that's not the way they would kill Rachel. Right. So like Cassie would be killed so that Jake feels bad, mm-hmm. right? Therefore fridged. Rachel would be killed because of her own actions. Like, die in battle is really, like, I'm not expecting her to be executed. But I think the way it will be characterized is a like, oh, actually, it's probably okay that Rachel's the one who died. Mm, Yeah. For her own sake. As opposed to, Cassie died because we need to see Jake be sad about something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like, yeah. Can I complain about Cassie's characterization of Rachel also? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, Cassie is telling Axe, like, I can't tell anyone else this theory that, like, maybe I had a good reason for giving the box away, which feels dumb and forced. She should have just told them all. I get that she's, like, embarrassed about what she did, but saying she had no reason is, like, not really all that much better. But she's like, how could I tell Rachel she lives for this war? Four books ago, Cryak came to Rachel and was like, if I give you all this power... You could, or I I could just get the Yerks off this planet and the war. And that's what makes Rachel go, oh, wait, maybe I should take this deal. This war could be over. Everyone could be saved. The Yerks could be gone. That's what she's fighting for. Yes. That's what she wants. She yes. doesn't just want to beat people up. How does Cassie not see that? Rachel is not in this war just for fighting sake. She actually cares about the cause. She cares about the people they're protecting. If Cassie presented Rachel with, maybe we can compromise with the Yerks in this way, chances are Rachel wouldn't actually buy that because it is pretty hard to imagine how they would compromise with the Yerks. But if there was actually a way to be safe from the Yerks and stop the war, Rachel would take that. Yes, the, of right. course she would. The difference is what they're willing to do to win. Right? That's mm-hmm. always been the difference between yeah. Rachel and Cassie. Yeah, it's not that right? Rachel doesn't want to win. She just wants the war to go on forever. So... 
Okay, this is my theory about... So Rachel and Cassie both are terribly characterized in this book. And Axe kind of sums it all up with this like, you know what, humans are pretty bad. Because on the one hand, you get these like completely out of control, like violence-loving berserkers like Rachel. And then you get these like helpless and meek and generous to the point of endangering your entire species in the form of Cassie. And they're both characterized as these like horrible, over-emotional, irrational extremes of humanity in a way that I think is like super misogynistic. That they out of all the Animorphs, right? Like Tobias could just as easily slot into this kind of like, well, you know, whatever mode as Cassie, right? Like, but not (laughs) only, not only does Axe think to himself, Rachel and Cassie are these extremes, but Cassie and Rachel just like tear into each other in a way that is not grounded in their friendship at all. Yes. Right? Like Cassie it's so said, it comes out Cassie of nowhere. Cassie says this whole thing where she's like, you know, why are you Rachel's so horrible? Like, <laughs> Rachel says, "What? What do you think we should do instead?" And Cassie explodes. That is the the verb they use. Why do you have to be so horrible? You are, you know, and you get worse every day. Your own mother can't even stand you. Who would Cassie would never Where did say that? Come that? From? Cassie doesn't say that. No. Awful. No. Awful. I do like the idea that a lot of, I mean, Rachel's current issues are coming from maybe the thing with Cryak, the thing that where she had to kill David. Like, there's a lot that could be feeding into that. I, I like the idea that her issues with her mother are a big part of it. Because, I mean, parents are so fundamental, especially when you're still a child. And all of a yes. sudden, her mother is part of this fight. Imagine doing these things that you're kind of ashamed of, but it's secret. And then all of a sudden, your mother is there watching you mm. do this, like, violence that you, you like, feel like is justified, but also you're really uncomfortable with it. And your mother has to see that you've become this person that people are afraid of in some ways. And I feel like that might actually, like, that probably is making her lean into it a little more. Like, she's pushing back against her mom's resistance to, like, the idea that they have to do any of this or that there's even a war going on. And so when her mom's like, let's stop and not kill this guardsman. Rachel feels like she needs to double down. All right, yeah, I'm. I like the characterization. Yeah, of Rachel, not of like the way that Axe thinks about Rachel or Cassie thinks about Rachel in this book, but like that choice, and then that she's able to break down afterwards and like reconcile with her mother. Like, I feel like that's actually really hopeful. Like, that could be a really yeah. good direction for her. And that the one time that Axe's characterization that I liked was right after she cries, and he says. He was glad to see her cry. Rachel is one human for whom I had never felt pity, but now I felt an odd sense of kinship. Perhaps Rachel, like me, suddenly realized that the gulf between the present and her childhood was an abyss of loss. Mm. Ooh, yeah. yeah, that's really accurate. Nice. So accurate for all of them. And and Axe kind of mentions that a couple times that their childhoods are over because of mm-hmm. what they've done and what they've seen, and that that is perhaps most true for Rachel. Um, And I think that's really spot on. That's totally true. One other thing I wanted to say about Rachel, I also like her characterization in the opening caper. You get this Mm. interesting combination of Rachel, Axe, and James on a recon mission Mm -hmm. that goes bad. And Mm -hmm. I feel like Rachel is probably, she feels like, the gloves are off now that it's open war, mm. probably now that there are more capable controllers. And in this kind of like action situation, I totally buy this dynamic where like, she's like, let's do something. And James, who is like new and yeah. bright eyed and like, like yeah, let's do I'm excited. Thing. He's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, Rachel, let's go. And so he's kind of like egging her on. I can totally <laughs> see her getting a kick They'd out of be that. Friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Right. And so like an axe being a little more cautious maybe makes sense, especially because he has divided loyalties again. Yeah. And then like even like the bit where Rachel and Axe kind of where Rachel is really snarky at Axe in the tunnel is like maybe a little over dramatic, but I do kind of buy the idea that Rachel would want to stalk off into the darkness and do as much damage as she can Mm -hmm. because she knows that she can do it and action is better than no action. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I really like those beats for Rachel. I just don't like the way that they're contextualized. I also, I had a lot of issue with Axe's posing the question as like, which is more dangerous, Cassie or Rachel? Like the misplaced sympathy or misplaced violence. And he's making all these connections to Ciro, Ciro's kindness. And it's just, it's so naive of him. I would just like to think that he had grown beyond that at this point. Like the series as a whole is really dealing with the complexities of war. Like Mm -hmm. both things can be bad. You can never pick one or the other and just go with it. And it feels like Axe should know that. Like he shouldn't be posing this false binary. I guess it's sort of like a book long arc where he sort of realizes that. But he does end up deciding Cassie was right, which is not the right choice to make like, like the right conclusion to draw is it's complicated both things are going to be right sometimes you can never stick to either path which is what they learn yeah. and why they sort of compromise on the, the mission. conclusion should be we don't know but maybe cassie was more right than i thought right yeah, like it's that. also like it's specifically about like he's saying she was right about some other judgment about like i guess whether they should like i forget exactly what it was it wasn't cassie was right to give up the morphing cube yeah she's right yes she was right in her assessment of the yerks yeah yeah, I, but they say like Cassie was right like fifteen times. Like it's just they're really trying to justify this. Yeah, which is incorrect. <laughs> it's it's incorrect. It's incorrect. She's she was not right. And and like the way so let's talk about Cassie and like <laughs> yeah the conclusion of the Cassie gave away the morphing cube whole stupid plotline. <laughs> when we talked about this a few episodes ago. Um, one of the things that Claire pointed out was the emphasis on paternalism and Mm. how bad that is um, because it leads you to make decisions that are not only are the decisions wrong, but the justifications for them are wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think Cassie like recognizes that she points out that I made a terrible mistake. I won't do it again. I won't try to decide what's right for everyone. It was arrogant and dangerous. I didn't mean it to be, but it was. That is Accurate. Yeah, that's very, actually a really good insight. Accurate. Yes. And the fact that Cassie recognizes that she was wrong, that she did the incorrect thing for the wrong reasons, she's still trying to justify herself, right? To Axe and to herself. Like, and when she talks about maybe maybe it was a good thing because like maybe some of the Yurks will use it to become Nothlets or whatever. She says, I wasn't thinking about this at the time, but like maybe subconsciously. And now that I've had time to think about it, here's how I'm justifying my actions. And she's very Mm. upfront about that. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But like, that is one of those like behavioral psychology things that for the most part, we we make a decision based on our impulses and instincts and then retroactively justify them. And that's where a lot of our kind of biases and and built-in prejudices come in because we're like, how can I justify this action that I decided I wanted to take? Here's how. Uh That is unhealthy and unhelpful. And in this particular case, the fact that her justification seems to be accurate and like is putting the Yerks, some of the Yerks in the best possible light and giving a nuance to this otherwise, 
you know, one tone evil species, that's all great, but it does not justify her actions. And I am annoyed with the books for trying to justify them to me when even she recognizes how wrong they were. I feel like there probably would have been a way to have her give morphing power to the Yerks in a context that had more in common with book 19 with Aftran, where she did spend a lot of time exploring this possibility, knew the person that she was giving this power to, and like Mm. was really making a thoughtful gamble, even if it had a lot of instinct in it. I think Mm -hmm. that would have been really cool. But I also kind of like that the books have driven Cassie to this place where this kind of decision that she makes, the kind of decision she made in 19 and got away with, she can't get away with anymore. Like Mm -hmm. she is making it in this larger arena where she can't control any of the things that are happening. She doesn't know the players. She's just given the box to Tom, who's a terrible guy, like or the Yerk is anyway. And Mm -hmm. the type of moral risk-taking that she is prone to on this scale is incredibly risky. And she hasn't grown the perspective or tools or like ability to scale that. Because I do think that sometimes risk-taking on that scale could be good. Like, if she wanted to figure out a way to give the Yerks the morphing power in a way that would give the Resistance this ability, like, she could have thought about that. She could have come up with a plan, even if it was a risky plan, even if it was one that relied on hope. But she didn't do that. She just kind of bumbled through and just gave the morphing cube to the first Yerk who ran off with it. Who And may, you know maybe it was because she wasn't thinking about that at all and is just retroactively justifying it. I like that point. But this, this thing where she isn't willing to face, like she isn't willing to think about the risks that she is taking and do them in a thoughtful way, like she has to step it up. We keep going on about how they're not children anymore. And in some ways they're still children. Like she is not learning the lessons that she needs to in order to operate on this scale. Yep. Accurate duck if. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Gray, I think you changed my mind about Cassie. The take of the sort of like her psychology. Whoa. As like, it's like such a human way to sort of rationalize your own decisions after the fact. Like she's basically, maybe she made her choice out of like cowardice or meekness or like intuition or whatever yeah caring more about jake fear pity and then it's taken her a couple of books to kind of like realize it i think that's a really strong read i i feel less inclined now to look at the foreshadowing in book 50 and say Mm. like i guess so here's kind of my takeaway reading 50 was i remembered so clearly that cassie has this like moment this sort of like flash of intuition where she's like she sees Jake about to be killed by Visser One and an anonymous Yerk breaks ranks and saves him. And she mm-hmm. sees Tom get the morphing cube, look at Visser One, and then run off into the darkness. And she kind of has this like, wait a second. We turned after it into a Nothlet. Like, like these pieces kind of come together and she's like, maybe this is the third way. We've said that it's going to be all out war as long as Visser One is in charge. But like, what if there's a third way, right? Like, it's very similar to the Aftran moment. It doesn't, I think, get the risks correct, right? <laughs> so I think your point, Jenny, is also the thing that I was looking forward to that like the Aftran thing is like this great moment of eucatastrophe where everything yeah. works out for the best. Cassie's and then she does it. Really comes and, right, and, but she, she learns the wrong lesson and does it again. Yeah. And it's so bad. I really like that as her arc. And so in reading 50, I was like, oh, here's all the foreshadowing. And then at the end, she's like, I just did it. I don't know why. 
And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was assuming that it was just because they didn't, they wanted to keep the readers in suspense or right. like they were, they didn't want this whole like, oh, maybe they didn't want to introduce the third way thing until this book where you get Ava saying like, let's drive the Yurks back and the Andalites saying, let's blow everyone up. It's like, they kind of wanted to save these ending possibilities for mm-hmm. a later moment, maybe. That I was, think that's accurate. That was kind I of how I, I read did. it. And yeah. I think that sure. that does a disservice to Cassie. But because it is written this way, I'm not sure I can disagree with your read that Cassie just made a real, real bad decision and has taken a few days or a few weeks to like come up with this justification for it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that rose me the wrong way in this book is... The way it seems like the authorial intent is that Cassie is right. Like the way acts sort of like yeah. unproblematically is like, she was right. It's like, no, like we don't know. Like we don't, no one knows yeah. that. Right. And like, if the point is that whatever Cassie does is right, then <laughs> that's, that's just boring writing. Like she's yeah. not, then, then she's more of like a Mary Sue. Right. It's like yeah. you can continue mm-hmm. to make stupid choices and the author will reward you, right? Like, which is which is yeah. terrible. Yeah, and I think it also leads me to have some questions and some concerns about the end game, right? Because mm. if the end game is that the peace that they are able to negotiate between the Yerks and the humans is due to Cassie's very bad decision, mm. I'm going to be a little upset about that because I do not think that she should be re- rewarded for that bad decision. I will also mention that John... Uh, sent me an email about this book that I didn't read until this morning because he t- sent it to me and I didn't want to spoil yeah, yeah. it. But there's like, <laughs> he has a very similar take on it, which is, I swear to f***ing God that if the end of the series is and all the Yerk, the Yerks all morphed Andalites and lived in total peace and harmony because of Cassie, I'm going to be all caps, bold, and italicized, extremely upset. Don't come at me <laughs> with that <laughs> And I could not agree more because, I mean... It's all well and good to say that there are Yerks who are part of the resistance, but we know that it's a pretty small number of them. Mm -hmm. And also, at one point earlier in the series, I do not remember when or in which book or what happened. It was probably the Cassie book where they let Aftran become a whale. Mm -hmm. But I think at one point I was like, let's just have all the Yerks, like, become Nothlets. Yeah. I've reconsidered. Because now what you're going to have, I realized it during this book, is a bunch of, like, sentient pandas. (laughs) Which seems wrong somehow. <laughs> like, even if you become Nothlet, you're still a sentient being, right? Tobias yeah. hasn't become a hawk. He's, like, right. a human in a hawk body. So we're going to have a bunch of, like, sentient yerks in, like, panda bodies. And I have... I'm just a little... Like, that seems... <laughs> that seems wrong somehow. I have no further justification for that feeling. But I'm just a little squicked out by the way. Do you think they'll drive them towards endangered species? Because they're like, we need well, more that's pandas what I, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what I had originally, like, that was my, my um, thought was like, well, th- we'll save the endangered endangered species by, this like, just not letting This is how bees come yerks. back. Yeah, just turn them all into bees and then not let them as bees. And, like, look, new bees. But it's, like, sentient <laughs> bees. bees, which seems bad. <laughs> so I don't have a solution for this. but I, I really want to read the fic where it's, like, ten years after all yerks have become bees and bee <laughs> civilization has taken over the entire world. <laughs> The stingers! The stingers are too powerful! <laughs> you thought murder hornets were bad. Wait till you may meet Yerk bees. <laughs> and, like, people would keep having bees crawl into their ears. Oh, no. The bees are like, I just feel so comfortable there. What would they be called? Beerks? Beerks. Oh, no. Beerks. Beerks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
So I did have a question. Like when the Yerks are morphing, is it Yerks who are morphing or is it their controllers, like the bodies who are morphing? Not always clear. We, we, we see, see a lot of like human controllers yeah. morphing. We so haven't seen any Yerks morphing for sure. We haven't seen sure, any Yerks morphing. The, morphing the, the, the bird nothlet, it's plausible. But do you think that it was... Because we have long posited like what happens if when you morph with a Yerk in your head, which I guess a lot of Yerks now know... If the controller morphed, if that was like a human controller who morphed and the Yerk went into Z-Space or whatever, does that Yerk think that they can survive indefinitely in Z-Space without Candrona rays and that like, you know, the human body is now a hawk? So like this poor human controller is now trapped as a peregrine falcon and has a Yerk controlling them forever with no hope of escape. That is the worst possible outcome. Axe was wrong (laughs) to try to spare that person. Unless it was the Yerk who was morphing, but we haven't seen that, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not the worst possible outcome, because at least now you don't have to, like, go into battles you don't want to be in. But, like, it's not great. You're a a bird slave for the rest of your life. It's, okay, it's like the second or third worst possible outcome. Because at least when you're going into battles, like, the Yerks could still lose, and you could get your freedom again someday. If you're nothlitted as a bird... Or you're just going to get killed by a bunch of teenagers, that's not bad. But you have hope. The planet might, the Andalites might blow up the planet, but you have hope. Whereas once you're nothlitted as a bird with this yerk in your head, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't have Fair any enough. hope. And maybe you can make friends with the yerk. I don't know. So let's also talk about Jake's reaction to Cassie's confession oh, to the Jake. group. Jake in this book. Very was, interesting. Yeah. I was real surprised by his reaction and I haven't really, I don't know. I haven't thought it through yet. I would love to have you guys' perspective on it. So Cassie is like... Yes, I gave the cube away. I don't know why I did it. I like I thought it was right in the moment, but now I see it was just dumb. I shouldn't have made the decision for everyone. I'm so sorry. And everyone's aghast. And Axe is like, I've never hated someone like this. And Jake is like, it's okay, Cassie. I understand. I'm going to hug you. And I was like, whoa, whoa. That was... I had been wondering like how, if, and how they would reconcile if it would just be like well jake and cassie hate each other now like you said gray worst worst way to break up with someone or if it like you know how that would happen apparently just jake gets over it if cassie's confession is enough for him like what so i have two takes on this okay good i don't have any takes yet one is there's something that i find compelling about how cassie's confession is not a moment for the Animorphs to all turn on each other. Like, Mm. Axe does feel a lot of hatred, but his instinct is to go talk to her about it. And Mm -hmm. she sort of says, like, wow, yeah, I kind of betrayed Elfangor. But, like, Axe leaves that conversation with Cassie thinking, yeah, she's a traitor, but I'm not convinced she was totally wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. And I feel like the fact that Cassie confesses and takes ownership... It, it almost feels like a release valve for some of the tension the Animorphs are under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they basically rally around her and they're, they're all kind of like, oh, gosh, this is bad. Well, we're <laughs> going to blow up the Yerk pool, right? Like, and like, I find something compelling about how it draws them back together instead mm-hmm. of sending them further apart. The specific way that Jake is characterized doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially, and I feel like it's, you don't, I feel like you don't get the Jake that we've seen in the past few books as strongly yeah. here. Which is, so like something, again, something about his characterization seems a little off. But my thought about her confession is basically like, again, Jake thinks Cassie is wrong. And the way that she confesses is by completely admitting that Jake was right the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so 
it it feels a lot like I can see he's basically been it's like waiting a capitulation. Yeah, he's been waiting for her to capitulate, and now Ooh. he can and now he can basically say like, okay, it's fine, you know, like as long as you know that you were wrong. And that um, I was right. <laughs> but then he goes on to be like, and I trust Cassie to make decisions and, def- you know, don't become the Yerks, which is like, that doesn't quite gel with the reading that he's just like waiting for Cassie to come around back to his side. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't totally know what to make of it. I wonder, I mean, we've talked a lot about Cassie being like Jake externalizing his conscience onto Cassie. And I wonder to what extent this is like he had thought he had lost that, like, okay, Cassie did something that was so beyond the pale that I can't do this anymore. I can't let her make these decisions for me. And then she's like, oh, no, 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 I was wrong. That was completely stupid. And as Marco says, Cassie made it was dumb for like half a second, which talk about your understatement. But yeah, I wonder if it's like, he's so relieved that he can, he's like, oh, she admitted she was wrong. Okay, we can go back to status quo. We can go back to like, me just having yeah. her make all the moral decisions because I can't handle them for myself and I need her to fill this role. I've lost all these other important people in my life that were supporting me. Thank goodness I can at least he, put Cassie back in this role. He just doesn't seem as dangerously weak as he has seemed in the past few books, yeah. right? Like you get him standing up to the National Guard guy and you have like Axe kind of putting him on a pedestal as like, oh, Jake, my prince. <laughs> and and like I actually I kind of love that, but it feels a little incongruous with the past few books for Jake. Uh huh. I did. I love the it's moment. Just, Axe has uh, Jake tinted glasses, and so <laughs> he just sees Jake as being perfect. Yeah. I kind of think Axe is in love with Jake in this book. Aww. Anyway, I did. I really liked the moment when we got the uh, you know Jake is like for the last time because apparently he thinks they're all gonna die. He's like for the last time. Don't call me Prince. And I was like, we haven't seen that in so long. I missed it. No, and that whole moment, I actually I actually started crying a little oh. bit. I teared up a little bit. Because like all of the Animorphs say goodbye to their families in different ways, right? Rachel, yeah. Cassie, Tobias, and Marco are all saying goodbye to their families because they all think they're going to die when they fail to blow up the Earth pool or whatever. And Axe is like, I have no family. And then he looks at Jake and he's like, Jake also has no family. Oh. And he, he like trots over to him and he's like, oh, my Prince, my Prince. <laughs> And then Jake is like, oh, Prince, for the Prince. last time. But it's such a sweet it's moment so of sweet. them, like, so you know, sweet. being there for each other. Found family. I love it. It didn't reconcile me to Axe, but it was a sweet moment. Yeah. So I want to take I want to take a moment to talk about logistics. Like, I don't want to just beat up on this book too much. It was incredibly unevenly written. I just, I, I cannot not call out this thing where... Their calibration of danger and, like, their feeling of certainty about that is so off the whole book. So they're talking about maybe we maybe we should blow up the Yerk pool. And Jake is like, okay, so who should we use for this? And Rachel's like, well, we have these people and these people and these people. And Jake's like, that's everyone. And Cassie's like, we're spending everyone on a single mission. And Tobias is like, maybe we should rethink this. And I was like, maybe you should rethink using everyone on the mission you don't have to rethink the mission why did it become a foregone conclusion that if you're doing this mission you have to use everyone they could so easily have flown into the national guard enclosure place whatever spied on the warehouses in insect morph because they're animorphs and that's what they do figured out which warehouse had the explosives and like done some antics to get them out of there. They could have done the thing where they talked to the National Guard earlier. Like they did not need to use everyone. 
Because it's like now that they have all these people, like I agree with you, Ted, that it was fun to see everyone in the mission. It was so fun. I actually, I didn't think it was fun. I hated it. But <laughs> I, I'm glad that you thought it was fun. And I did. Mm. I do like that everyone sort of came together for this mission. But it seemed like because they had all these people, the book just did a really bad job of calibrating a mission where they needed to use all yeah. these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's I'm like... I'm pretty um, sure like 11 of the auxiliary animorphs did literally nothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, when they're, like, the, the subway station fight, you only get James and his crew. There are two whole squads of auxiliaries that, of that aren't there. I out other guards at the National I know, Park. but yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. But like, so they're like... Okay, we want to use all the people. Let's design a mission that needs all the people, but they failed. Like yeah, they did not yeah. need all of those yeah. people. They That's fair. they needed like the six original animorphs could have blown up the Yurk pool on their own. They the narrative did not make a good case for needing all these people. And while we're talking about the auxiliaries, who the heck is Tuan? Right? Okay, that wasn't me, right? That's no, new. He's okay. he's a Timmy retcon, right? Because he think also is a Bobcat. Timmy into Tuan. Okay, because I was like, I didn't go back and check the other book. I did. I was like, I do not remember this name. There was no Tuan. I looked up the name Tuan, and on Wikipedia, plausible name entries, both for kind of like Celtic Gaelic language or Sri Lankan of Malay origin. So could plausibly be Timmy (laughs) rebranding? They were like, oh, yes, we didn't have enough ethnic diversity among the auxiliaries. No, I Let's mean... Let's pretend that Timmy was that always Timmy's Tuan. an animorph, maybe he changed his name to Tuan. <laughs> Which, like, know. good for you, but... The real question will be, will will he be Timmy or Tuan in the next book? <laughs> yeah. I think it's what like a Dr. Mr. Hyde situation. Oh, my God. This is how we know the Elemist and Cryak have intervened in the, the past few books because the one detail that's different is Timmy no longer exists. And there's this His guy Tuan instead. Theater. Instead, there's this oh, guy no. Tuan. There's probably no musical theater in this universe. Tuan will Tuan oh. will end up betraying them. And if, <laughs> if only Timmy had been there, you know. Oh, this is Timmy. like when Germany disappeared, and that's how we knew that the Elemist and Cryak had intervened. <laughs> that's when Germany disappeared. They're just in an alternate universe now where okay. there's no Germany to and be fair, Timmy is Tuan. That was the best arc in the series, and they left out an entire... They retconned <laughs> an entire country in the third book. So <laughs> it's not like the Animorphs has, has been consistent on this kind of book continuity stuff. It's so true. So I, while I'm on my writing rant, the ending of this book is not how narrative works. Or it's not <gasps> how, like... I'm going to fight you on this one. But okay. you do your half first. <laughs> So, disclaimer up front, there, I feel like sometimes there are traditions of how narratives work, and that's not how narrative has to work, it's just how we expect it to work, but usually if it's going to work differently, it should work in a way, differently in a way that's like more satisfying or more interesting, not just, oops, we didn't do this thing, guess it's not required. So they have this plan, they're going to put explosives on a train, and they're going to blow up the yerk pool, and they're going to like, give people some warning and have them like, escape. And we know that what happens when we get told a plan in a narrative is that it can't go according to plan. Right. So we, so with the National Guard base, that all worked fine. We didn't know the plan. We got to see it on a, like roll out. And it also went wrong in an interesting way. They ended up having to tell the National Guard. That was all great. They get the explosives. They're on this train. They hit a couple obstacles. Oh, they have to fight a couple people. But like basically, they set the detonator when they plan to. They send it into the yerk pool. Visser 1 shows up and I'm like, oh no, okay, this is the thing where they had this whole thing like five minutes isn't long enough for the Yerks to disarm the explosives. And then Visser 1 shows up and then disappears and acts as like, he must be morphing something to escape. And I was like, ah, all the classic signs of, no, he's morphing something that will let him 
disarm the explosives and you guys will have to do something really dangerous to rearm the explosives or like figure out some other way to make them explode. Like, I don't know, drop something on the train, although it already crashed and I'm not sure why it didn't explode then. Anyway, the narrative was setting us up for we've given you a couple of like false leads about how well this is going to go. And then it went perfectly. That's not how narrative works. You have to have a twist. Come on. You told us exactly the plan. And then we watched the plan happen. Like, granted, I, I feel a little bad that I'm arguing for formulas, but like they're formulas for a reason. And you don't break formula to be more boring than formula. Right. What's so, your counter argument, Ted? No, <laughs> totally agree with this perspective. It didn't rub me the wrong way for two reasons. One, the twist really comes from at the end of the series, the plan goes off without a hitch. Because mm. I feel like reading this at this point in the series, you're like, well, of course this isn't going to work, right? Uh-huh. Like, you you really don't expect the escalation of the Animorphs <laughs> blow up the city, right? So in kind of like a meta-narrative sense, it is kind of a satisfying payoff that actually we're going to defy convention and the plan goes off and they win. Uh-huh. And then you get the double reason of the plan goes off without a hitch and it's awful. They just mm-hmm. feel incredibly bad about it. And that whole chapter is them being like, oh, God, what have we done? Mm-hmm. Where can we possibly go from here? So I understand the like, especially since you were reading it, expecting the twist and not yeah. getting it, that being frustrating. But if your expectation is like, this will never work <laughs> or like. Oh, I completely expected it to work. Book 52, I expected them to blow up the year pool. Yeah, yeah. But like, I feel like, for whatever reason, I feel like this earns the ability to mess up the twist. That being said, the writing is so uneven, you're probably right. I I like your point about within the series, it's nice that like, oh, this one worked. Whoa. But I think actually the thing where it worked and it's horrible, it would have been better if they had planned for a slightly lesser disaster. Mm. And they ended up having to choose between not blowing up the York pool and a slightly worse disaster. Mm. Mm-hmm. Then, then I feel like the book would have really earned, oh, crap, we blew up like multiple blocks of this city. This is terrible. That would have been so good with the Jake Cassie thing, too, right? Oh, where he's Cassie like, yeah. no, no, right. Where he sends Cassie and she's like, well, I did what you would have done. And I blew up the city, right? Like that would have been, that would have been such a good <laughs> that moment That would have been fascinating. Them. Yes. Oh. Okay. I, I now really regret that that didn't happen. But yeah, that's, so that's, that's what I mean. I think that there are ways to accomplish that. It going even better than expected and it being more devastating than most of the things they've done before while still being narratively interesting. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's my writing rant. I had more like moments where I'm like, this paragraph doesn't make sense, but like, I'm not gonna get into all that. Yeah, we don't have time for that. Yeah, I'm looking at my notes now. Of course, the bodies the Yerks covet the most are bodies like mine. Andalite bodies. Andalites have four legs. This gives us the speed of horses. And I was like, what? (laughs) To borrow a gray expression, what are you talking about? Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) Lots of things with four legs have different speeds. That's not how leg numbers work. Totally nonsense. I have some more Cassie thoughts, things that I just want to point out so we can track them for the future. Nice. So one thing that I don't like is that my biggest regret is that this Cassie felt like the right thing is, is that I want Cassie to make the case for her third way, even if it's foolish. Like, Mm. I just want her to own that idea instead of like, oh, everyone's going to be mad at me if I tell them that I have hope about things, right? Like, <laughs> And instead, she's kind of internalized Jake's view that everything was wrong, which is like, it totally was a bad decision. But like, what I really want is for her 
to at least articulate her stance to the group, even if she then admits it's wrong, right? Like, that's yeah. that's the thing that I really miss here. Interestingly, despite all the bad things Cassie has done, she does save the Earth from getting blown up because her slightly, like, guilt-tripping acts means that <laughs> he does not go report the loss of the Escafil device to Andalite High Command. Which, yeah, okay. So, right, she does a lot of bad, but she does some good, right? <laughs> Um, speaking of the Escaville device, I have a question. Yeah. How many Escaville devices are there? In, we have no idea. Like the galaxy? I assume yeah. a bunch, but it seems like not that many. I, I mean, don't know. I think had one on his ship. He was just like in a like fighter, an Andalite fighter. So Right. Okay. Just checking. The other, and like, this is such a minor point, but I'm going to bring it up because it annoyed the crap out of me. <laughs> um, in that part that you just read about how the Yerks, of course, want Andalite bodies more than any others. Mm-hmm. One of the things he says is like, oh, also, and of course, our ability to morph. Yeah, I was like, you're a couple books behind, buddy. The way, <laughs> but like the, first of all, yes, you're a couple books behind. But also, our ability to morph is in it's not li- like, it's right. parallel. Right. Yes, it's parallel to like, we have four legs, we have no mouth, we can thought speak, also we can morph. And I was like, it is a technology. <laughs> it is not biology. I hate you. It, it, right. It's like thing. humans have two legs. They breed really fast. And, and they have internet. They have internet. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Literally the example I was going to use. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so there's okay, also this on. thing about how Andalites have really closely guarded the ability to morph. And I was like, you sort of have, but you haven't. Like, if you were really closely guarding it, you would have, like, one device in a locked safe at the academy with like 10 safeguards around it. Everyone would go through and get their power. You wouldn't send an Escafil device on a random fighter. Like I realized that like Elfengor is really cool. So like, also he got promoted to War Prince in this book. <laughs> so maybe like War Prince Elfengor had like the one Escafil device of the fleet was like on his ship, but that doesn't seem that likely. No, and like, why would you put it on the fighter pilot ship and not on the like dome ship like it doesn't make any sense yeah so you just you brought up jake calling elfinger a war prince this is during mm. his like big talk jake scene oh yeah did you not love this scene jenny i love that scene jake standing up to authority and just like it's being one of my favorite cool things. and confident yes the, it, the national guard guy is not andalites in fact he seems like a totally nice cool he's yeah. great yes yeah the thing that jumped out to me is that in introducing toby jake low-key signals his intent to liberate the Hork-Bajir homeworld. Wait, what? When he says, when he says, I, okay, if you guys didn't pick up on this, I'm going to have to find the, the passage and read it because yeah. it blew my mind. I'm, I, I have no idea what it implies. I hope that's his intention. That sounds great. So this is in part of his pitch where he tells the entire story of the Animorphs. The to entire one national, story. One National All Guard guy on, on this mission. He, he's using, he has Axe Demorph, he has the hork the Free hork show up, and he's like, Hey, Toby, Toby's the leader of a group of Free hork also valuable members of the Resistance. Together we've been fighting the Yerks, when we're lucky, freeing more of Toby's people, and maybe someday, her home planet. And I'm like, <laughs> first of all, this is just big talk, Jake, but... My headcanon is that at some point, Toby and Jake were like butting heads over leadership things. And Jake basically had to agree that he will not <laughs> stop fighting with Toby until he frees the Horkbajir homeworld, right? Like, this I is like, it. this is like yes. one of his concessions. He's like, Amazing. fine, I'm signing up for more war. It's not just Earth. Eventually, we're going to go to Horkbajira and we're uh, going to save everyone. Horkbajira. 
And like Jake, you do not have another fight in you like this. Oh man. Well, right, but oh, I just man. I absolutely love even if he has no intention on following through on it or whatever, but like one of my favorite headcanons is just like the Jake and Toby really being doing hard-headed negotiation yeah. all the time, right? Like I love yeah. that. Toby does not let him get away with any crap, I hope. Yeah. So I do love that. I hope that someday we get the sequel series of them freeing the other worlds that have been infested by the Yerks. I, yeah, so I, I just love that. I had a couple little things from Axe's introduction of, of everything that I really loved and want to highlight. Here is a direct quote. The original members of the Animorphs are Jake, Rachel, Cassie, Tobias, Marco, and me, the only Andalite. It's <laughs> Also... The others are now of the age to be attending what humans call high school. Yeah. They finally made it to high school age. I'm glad they, they finally did not graduate it. from eighth grade, but how nice that they're of the age <laughs> to go to ninth grade. I think they probably were already in ninth grade. Like, I think they, I think they probably I'm got into high school age. so excited for yeah. the next book. <laughs> okay, and I also, I'm sorry, I, I alluded to this in my summary. This city, this city, this city does not have a subway. Since no. what has the city have a subway? The like, city doesn't have a They've subway. taken buses. They've mentioned buses lots of times. They've dug tunnels underground as taxons. They've done a lot of digging around the Yerk Pool as moles, as other stuff. You know what's never, ever, ever been mentioned? A subway. You cannot introduce a subway system in book 52. I don't actually care so much about that part of it. I do. <laughs> but I think you can't introduce a subway system when... Canonically, there is a giant underground complex <laughs> yeah. already below the city. In the middle of the so city, yeah. The fact but that they needed to extend point. the subway tunnels. Subways aren't like for like getting between different suburbs, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Subways are about getting was there a people that from just the didn't suburbs go through the into the, of the downtown, city? right? And so at the end, of, like half the mall has fallen into a sinkhole, and you're telling me there wasn't a subway stop at the mall? <laughs> That is an even better point. Thank you so what much, Ted, point. for making my point even better. That's brilliant. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, even if this is... So, when I was trying to imagine, like, a subway loop around the center of town, which is the Yerk Pool, mm -hmm. I was imagining the Chicago subway, which does have... Chicago downtown is called the Loop, and it's mm -hmm. called the Loop in part because the elevated tracks for the L is what the, the like subway system in Chicago is called. The mm -hmm. L actually does a loop around the center of the city, uh -huh. like the, the business downtown. So I was like, okay, so like the subway is over on the outside. It doesn't make any sense. No. It doesn't make any it's, sense. No. That's not how subways work. It's ridiculous. Also, Texans can dig fast, but they probably don't lay track or electrical wiring. <laughs> wire electric third rails. Reinforce Ooh. the ceiling. Like, the, you can't just have a hole. You can't just shove a train through a can hole. Can they build extra trains? Because it's taken us, like, years to get new trains. I know. Like, it doesn't make Oh, it's any too much. It's too much. Do you know what else doesn't make any sense? What? Somebody explained to me in detail in our last mailbag episode how Z-Space works, uh -huh. likening it to, for example, a piece of paper that you crumple up, mm -hmm. and that is how you get from one side to the other. In this book, we get a new suggestion, uh -huh. which is a suggestion that we do, we, that the um, Animorphs uh, should chase the Yerks into Zero Space, and the Andalite fleet ambushes them there. <laughs> so you're telling me I didn't even pick up on that that you can predict where this fleet will be in zero space and then while in zero space destroy them because 
No, you can't. I'm like, pretty sure that's I, not what, how it worked in the Andalite Chronicles. What like, are you Z-space, talking like, about? You, you're in danger I, once you come out of Z-Space. I really yes. hope that's the last we hear of that, because that, that also bothered me. <laughs> the dumbest I was so Who upset about that? it. Who said that? Toby said that, I think. Okay, maybe Toby doesn't understand Z. So she's so smart. How dare though. you? I know, I'm so sorry. Toby's yeah, so exactly. smart. Maybe Toby has figured out how to lay a trap in Z-Space. Oh my and God. she's pioneering this technology. <laughs> Great. Yes, that Fine. was the only acceptable explanation. I was so mad, you guys. Okay, so I have a couple just like little character notes and things. One thing that I thought was interesting, and we already talked about kind of your endgame death prediction, Gray, but one thing mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting is um, Marco. when Marco, Axe, and Cassie are on the train, one of them has to be the one to wait and set the detonator. And Marco mm-hmm. doesn't trust it to be Cassie because he thinks that she's going to sacrifice herself, mm. right? So he's seeing this, like, yeah. her desire to be redeemed through death is coming through pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. Also, um, we talked a little bit about Naomi suddenly becoming useful. But <laughs> one of the things that I loved about it is you get to see where Rachel gets some of her mama bear instincts because Ooh. she is Jake's biggest detractor behind the scenes. And uh-huh. then as soon as Jake is standing up to the National Guard, she comes over and she's like, my nephew is going to <laughs> save the world. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's like, exactly Yay! like Rachel. She totally knows how to like play a network also. She's like, I saved your son, remember? This is my nephew. <laughs> she knows what strings to pull. It's Also, great. there's this little line where Naomi is like, what? hope for the best. Lauren says, let's hope for the best. And Naomi's like, what? Are, am I the only one who's worried about our kids? And Axe is like, you do not need to be afraid on behalf of Rachel. Rachel is the one who frightens others. Which... Shut up, Axe. Yeah, terrible, but it reminds me of in Breaking Bad, uh, Walter White's wife, Skylar, is really worried about him getting like involved in the in the drug trade. And she's like, yeah, you know, people have been like killed in their home. You know, like you hear a knock on the door and the next thing you know, you've been like shot and killed and stuff. And Walter White is like, you think someone's going to come and knock on my door? No, Skylar, I am the one who knocks. And I was like, ooh, yeah, like Rachel's the one who knocks. Like, this is kind of like a great (laughs) way to frame it. But Rachel is not Walter White. Yeah. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Exactly. Exactly. I just really like that line. I really liked some of Toby's moments in this book. The Z-Space thing, maybe not her finest. But I loved this part where she says, this is a war. There is no question that people will die. The only question is who. There was another long pause. Okay, Tobias said finally. I guess that sort of sums it up. Like, yeah, it does. Smartest. She's probably like a year old now or something. Maybe even older. I don't know. But smartest toddler ever. Can we talk about Tobias? We have not talked about him. So he is just absolutely the best. Mm -hmm. The whole chapter where Axe and Tobias talk is my favorite thing in the book. Because Axe is like, he has all this inner turmoil about thinking. Basically, he's like, I've been all about Andalite High Command and like these Animorphs, their kids, they're screwing up. How can I betray my people? Maybe it's best if all the humans die. But then Cassie just brings up Elfingor and he's like, oh gosh, like yeah, Elfingor really saw something in these kids and trusted them and was willing to break the law of Sirius kindness and did all of these stuff, these things. And I love and admire my brother. And so like, how can I reconcile these two things? And Tobias shows up and uh, Tobias is like, hey man, what's going on? <laughs> And Axe is like, I can't lie to my my Shorn. Actually, Tobias is like, so what did you decide? I already like saw everything. <laughs> well, right, right, right. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Tobias is basically like, yeah, I've been following you. I pretty much know you're talking to the Andalites. And Tobias is like, they're going to fry us, aren't they? Like, yeah. Which is like, it's such a good Tobias line. It's mm-hmm. like, he's kind of like 
making light of it or whatever, but he's really acknowledging how heavy it is. And he's also like not being paternalistic at all. He's like respecting mm-hmm. that X might have like yeah. he's sort of like yeah I don't really know what the right answer is here like maybe yeah. it would be for the best if Tobias the allies try us all. Super good at not stepping in where it's someone else's business. I feel like that's a yeah. really strong part of his character. Yeah, and then they have this whole conversation about basically I guess underlying one of the themes, which is war is bad and we don't know what the right answers are and we have to make up mm-hmm. the rules as we go along. And Tobias yeah. is such an advocate for like compassion and pragmatism where he's like i think he's talking about cassie's choice and he's like i've been thinking about it since we lost the box they the yurks need bodies maybe this is the way out and like we don't know that it won't be worse but we also don't know that it will be worse and so maybe you just have to try things and learn from them and like not care so much about following a moral code and i'm like tobias yes this is this is this is everything like this is exactly (laughs) how you should handle yeah. these really weighty choices. And he's he's so clear about it too. I mean, he's clear-eyed in a way that I think we we don't get from a lot of the other characters who are mired in their own sense of indecision. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that he's kind of in this like gray area, he's he's so articulate about making it up as we go along. There aren't any rules falling out of the sky telling us what to do. So, like you were saying, like we don't know what the morality is here. Maybe we just need to kind of try things and see what happens. And the nice thing that he does is he doesn't justify Cassie's choice, right? He says, I- I've been thinking about this too. And like, the- basically the choice was wrong, but maybe here's a positive outcome. And I loved that way of putting it because I've been so annoyed with Cassie mm-hmm. and unable to like see the potential positives from her action. And I like that Tobias doesn't justify her mm-hmm. incorrect action, but he does say like, okay, well, it's too late. We can't, there's no sense in recriminations about what's already happened. What can we learn from this? What can oh, we do going forward? So I just love him so much, right. you guys. I love that you talk about him as clear-eyed. I feel like, of course, that's that's his role in the group, right? To be the eyes yeah. in the sky and to see everything. But I was thinking while you were talking, I was like, but isn't Marco also clear-eyed? And like, in a way, but like, all Marco sees is the line. Like, Marco yeah. sees the bright, clear line, and then he doesn't see other stuff. Cassie sees the obstacles in the way of the bright, clear line. Rachel sees the thing right in front of her that she can fight. Tobias sees everything and is able to take it all in, even when it's conflicting, even when it's hard to to hold yeah. all of those things at once. The whole landscape. Mm-hmm. Can I also just touch really quickly on one thing that Ted said, which was we've we've kind of mentioned this in passing a few times, but a theme that another theme that comes up in this book is Ciro's kindness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how both Elfingor and Cassie have violated the yeah. law. Of Ciro's kindness by giving technology to another species, Elfengor by giving the morphing to the Animorphs, and Cassie by giving morphing to the Yerks. And I really appreciated that parallel because I think it, it leads into some of the, again, the nuances of this book. Like giving technology to the Yerks is painted as uniformly bad. Mm-hmm. But maybe it isn't. And maybe there are ways to pursue peace or symbiosis of some kind, perhaps by giving them different technology or by negotiating with them or something. And I really appreciated that that, that parallel was drawn between what Ciro did, what Alfengor did, and what Cassie did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that I wish the book hadn't harped so much on Cassie was right, because I like that all of those were really complicated decisions. Elfingor's mm-hmm. was a really good decision in a lot of ways, but it resulted in Cassie's decision. So, you know, it, even that is complicated. Yeah. yeah. 
the chi show up or rather fail to show up in this book when they're like, oh, yeah, we need to figure out maybe we could figure out how to disarm a bomb. And someone's like, the chi could help. And they're like, no, the chi would never help with something that violent. It's against their principles. And like, for the first time, I agreed with them. But like, I feel like we have sort of shifted the understanding of the chi from like, some of the chi want to help however they can, but they physically cannot commit acts of violence. And like that has shifted to also, they won't help with anything that will result in violence. And that doesn't seem to be Eric's stance. I don't know. Mm. I feel like we haven't gotten that from him. Like, he's sometimes he's regretful, like, no, I can't just, like, shove something out a window because I know it would hurt the howler. Sorry, I, my programming won't let me do that. You know, he, he is generally aiding and abetting violent activities indirectly, and it doesn't seem like he's opposed to that. He is opposed to the extreme violence he could do on his own unfettered. Yeah. I mean, and so maybe there is an analogy to like, this would be that level of violence and they wouldn't go for that. But they don't quite like, draw that line. No, yeah. I feel like they've like dropped the nuance of the cheese situation. You, you at least want Eric to articulate that, right? Like right. the fact that they're making the assumption is yeah. too convenient. Right. They just don't want to have to deal with the chi in this book, I guess. One interesting thing about Axe almost betraying them is part of what leads him to do it is like, I think jake forgiving cassie right Mm -hmm. like he's like i'm so angry and jake is like he's not being the hard-headed prince that i want to take orders from Mm -hmm. and like it's it reminds me a little bit of the fireside scene um a couple books ago when like if jake had started crying maybe everyone would have been like oh gosh we're really screwed (laughs) right like it feels told the it's kind of validating that like showing vulnerability means people don't want you to be the leader in in an interesting way oh Um, so sad there's also this really interesting thing, the way Jake thanks Axe at the end, I feel like is leaving the door open to like somehow Jake knew Axe was thinking about betraying them. Did you guys get that vibe? I did think it was weird, but I was like, maybe Jake is back to like good leadership Jake and is individually thanking each of his people who went <laughs> That's on That's probably train. more likely. I was like, he probably thanked Marco and Cassie also. Maybe he thanked Cassie in a different way. Yeah. I also, I really loved... I didn't like the axe is like, Cassie was right. Cassie was right. But I did love the bit where he's like, I was killing wolves and then I got like knocked out. And then he wakes up and he's like, there are a bunch of dead wolves. Oh my gosh. Cassie might be one of them. I like, really like In that. the heat of battle, yeah, I might yeah. have killed Cassie. And like, I'm just so used to the, you know, we have our battle morphs and we're all unique or whatever. And that visceral sense of regret of like, she could be dead and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And like, I haven't processed all these feelings of hatred that felt so human yeah. in like a really nice way. I actually didn't realize he thought he might have killed her because that just seems like, I mean, she would have known if she was fighting an Andalite and said something. Like, I, I didn't think that. I might have been overreading it. it. Yeah, because I think actually he she gets, might be dead. He thinks about the fact that he could have. I don't think he worries that he did. Mm-hmm. Okay, the other thing is, so um, the war is here and we've talked about it, but it's real bad. Uh-huh, um, real bad. Uh, it's kind of like a big return to some of those Megamorphs 3 feelings, Ooh, a little bit yeah. of those Book 46 feelings. And like the bit that like shook me a little bit was when Jake is doing his big talk thing, um, one of the National Guard is a controller and mm-hmm. almost shoots him in the head. And I'm yep. like, oh yeah, that happened in the books. Jake gets shot in the <gasps> head and, oh, like, no. and dies and then everything falls to pieces. And I'm like, oh yeah, like this is real fragile, right? Like I know the Animorphs have plot armor or whatever, except maybe one of them, but like, <laughs> but, like it's just like, 
when I stop to think about how much the rails are off at this point, it's like, it's pretty upsetting. And in a in a good way, I think. It was actually, it did feel a little, I mean, not disappointing. Obviously, I don't want them to die. But that they made such a big deal out of like, these three people will probably die. And then they were totally fine. The ones who took the explosives. That being the said, I do want to talk about that moment. And one thing I loved about it, which is the Animorphs finally called Jake out on some of his leadership BS. Oh. Because he's like, <laughs> obviously, I'm going. And then Marco's like, no. You're the leader. You <laughs> delegate this. You can't and, go. And Jake is like, oh, shucks, you guys, you're right. I'll send other people. And I'm like, yes, healthy choices. And then there's like well the, done, you guys. the poignant moment when they're like, there's not enough time to say goodbye, right? Like they go through all the motions of like their final farewells with their families. And then when the Animorphs are splitting in half for maybe the last mm-hmm. time, they're like, mm-hmm. all right, see ya. And they just go off yeah. and do the work. I like oh, that. Yeah. Uh, I have one more Yerk Logistics complaint, mm-hmm. which is... Great. The Yerk pool is weirdly a single point of failure for the Yerk invasion. (laughs) And they allude to now that this subway strategy works, they'll be able to do this in other cities. Are there or are there not other Yerk pools? (laughs) We have no idea. How the heck are they going to get from one to many? This is the point of the invasion that like, obviously, it's like the Hellmouth thing, like you Mm -hmm. mentioned recently, Jenny. I think you just have to kind of take it and not think about it. But like, it's just really weird that the Yerks' resources are not distributed in any way. Like, isn't Germany completely infested if it still exists? <laughs> like, I, what's going on? Yeah, do they not it's have gonna any need to? I, I need an answer to that question so I can predict the last two books in the series. Yeah. I mean, maybe you have to predict the answer to that question. But, like, I'm, like I feel like they're just going to make... A temporary yerk pool to feed, like, because they didn't destroy the Candrona, right? Probably. Right, right. So it's not like they can't get some I, the, more. The only way that I can space. read this book is that because Visser One is here, this is this is the biggest and most important and most significant yerk facility on the planet. Well, definitely. It, like, it can't be the yeah. case that there are equally powerful invasions in dozens of cities. Right. Just like one is the stakes here. are so miscalibrated. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that isn't the case, but it seems mm-hmm. like it must be the case. Yeah. Also to the point of destroying the York pool, the final scene of chaos there is like deliciously grim, right? Mm. It's like super cool when a subway train jackknifes into the York pool. Yes. And then like, it's actually terrible because there are people in cages and no one knows that they're yeah. all about to die. And like, and they have four minutes to get out. Some of the people, a yerk out of her ear. Yeah, some of the people decide that they will stay and unlock cages, knowing that this makes them yeah, more likely to die. die. Like yeah. those little moments of that was great. Humanity are really awesome to see. I'm glad that they finally crashed a vehicle into the yerk pool, which they had never done before. Yes, for the first time, what a what a new surprise. What did you guys think of Axe's rule of cool morphing, where he morphs bug except for one andalite finger? <laughs> I thought deep sigh, fine. <laughs> he couldn't just have jumped on the button as a bug. Probably not. I also loved that the raccoon morph is completely disposable. It was so clear that they had yes. planned the raccoon morph long before they knew what this book was going to be about. And then they're just like, yeah. and he uses a raccoon to sneak off. The end. Because it's got fingers kind of like an endomorph. And Axe is even like, this has now become one of my favorite morphs. <laughs> Whatever. This is never gonna, no one's ever going to be a raccoon in this series again. Come on. <laughs> the last two covers are just more raccoons. Oh, I'm sorry, Gray. I wasn't supposed to tell you. Spoilers. Um, I did love Visser One's appearance. Very much like 45, um, okay. where Visser 1 appears, more something super gross, is about to kill them, and Marco says, you're going to die. And Visser 1 is like, and just runs away. <laughs> like, Zoidberg's out of there completely. Yeah. Okay, no. 
It was fun in 45. You can't do it again. (laughs) The cameo did not work this time. It needed to have more consequences. Yes. And also, like, were you just hiding in the pool? (laughs) What the (laughs) f***? Good question. It is unclear where he came from. It did. It felt a little parodic, really. It's like, oh, we crashed a train into the pool. Oh, and now Visitor 1 is morphing a thing in the pool. Oh, he ran away. Like, what? What? Yeah. And got to a bug ship and out in four minutes. Doesn't make any sense. The last thing I want to say, which is a very minor note, this must have been like Peter's dream as an engineer and physicist or whatever to have to do the math and figure out how much dynamite (laughs) in how many cars can go on a subway train to blow up the Yerk pool. I'm really glad he had professional help Shout out yeah. to Tara Weston, munitions <laughs> expert of the National Guard. But <laughs> Very briefly mentioned person with two names, unlike most people in this series. <laughs> That's so true. True story. Oh, yeah, they doxed her. That's like pretty <laughs> terrible. That's all I have for this book. Marco's, Marco's family is totally a power family, and I love them. They're yeah. like, yeah, Marco's uh, like, yeah, we stayed up all night, me and my mom and my dad. And I was like, oh, right, like Marco's like... Original Animorph, awesome, obviously. His mom was the host of Visser One and like knows everything. And his dad is like a computer genius and helped discover Z Space. Like their right. their family yeah, is they're really so good. intense. I also I I also liked the Animorph dynamic moment when Marco is like, I'm gonna go save my dad. And Jake is like, uh-uh, you're coming back no, you're here not. and you're gonna do and the Marco's all like, the orders. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Marco's like, oh. All right. <laughs> no, he's yeah. not, though. He, yeah. It takes until Naomi's like, get over here! And Marco's right. like, oh, right, right, fine. Right. Yeah. I wonder, actually, if there's some element of, like, okay, we have a bunch of new Animorphs who have to follow the orders, but, like, we're the, like, cool kids who've been around forever. So yeah. we're, like, well, we have I more status. And he, in, like, book 40, he and Rachel go off and do the oh, bee that's thing. That's true. That is sort of a Marco thing in general. But a Marco mm. is kind of like, you're ordering me around? No, you order these other people around. Yeah. And, yeah. Wonder where that'll go. Speaking of where things will go. Ready for me to predict 53? Yes. The answer. I'm very excited. Can I look at the inside cover? Not yet. I need you okay. to, a couple of things. You were saying that you you thought the York Pool would blow up in one of the last four books. Yeah. I think it is fair for us to tell you that 53 is just as much the last book as 54 in a meaningful way. Like there's... Okay. This whole thing was a big escalation, but it was a self-contained episode. It's really more of like an ending part one, ending part two. So like... Two part... Yeah, that makes sense. I would predict the whole ending, then look at the inside cover and see if you want to figure out what the heck's going on there. This is going to be one of the more informative inside covers. So I think it'll be a fun thing to hear your take on. I don't know what happens in this book. (laughs) I'm terrified. So uh, book 53 is a Jake book. It's called The Answer. Um, the cut text is all questions are about to be answered and there's an extra little thing that says it's countdown time only one more book until the end and then I know that the last book is called the beginning and it's a Rachel book which by the way is maybe I don't know if that's extra ammunition for Rachel dying or Cassie dying unclear Uh, and Jake by the way is turning into a snake of some kind which I don't didn't remember him having a snake but maybe he gets one for some reason I have so many questions as I well, have they're all going to be answered, apparently. The, the series. The whole book is actually just a treatise on Z-Space. I know that it's not, because <laughs> there's no way you guys would have let me get this far into the series. The answer is always more Z-Space. I was going to have to read about Z-Space some more. They just fill everyone's head with Z-Space, and then New Yorks don't fit. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> the biggest question that is to be answered in the last two books is how they're going to get the Yerks off of Earth or negotiate with them or, like, come to some kind of 
agreement. So I'm predicting that that question begins to be answered in this book, and whether that is the interference of the Elemist or the interference of the Angelite Council or some kind of like behind the scenes, the Yerk Council has been negotiating with the Andalite Council and they're like figuring out their own sh- I don't know, but I think we we really need to have a book where there is an answer to what the endgame actually is. Mm-hmm. It, it, it can't be that the Yerks are going to be destroyed entirely because that seems very unlikely, but also like would not be a good, I think would not be a good cap to the discussions we've been having about the nuance of war and so on. So I think there's going to have to be some kind of negotiation of like living in peace or giving them all morphs or finding them some, you know, symbiotic host species like the Iscord or something. Mm-hmm. So that is the question that I think is going to be answered. And then over the this book and then the last book, it's going to be how that actually plays out. And like the final battle against Visser 1, mm-hmm. um, in which I suspect Cassie or Rachel dies. Mm. And as part of that battle... Like, the Elemist and Cryak are going to, to show up one more time. Mm. They have to, um, not least because the dying Animorph needs to have that conversation with the Elemist that we mm-hmm. saw uh, in the Elemist Chronicles. Not Those are not very specific predictions, but that's the arc that I want to happen. The, yeah, thematically, you're talking about, like, the themes of the ending. What are the remaining costs of the war? Okay, well, we've just lost a big part of this city. There's the death of whatever Animorph is going to die. I mean, rebuilding in general, I think, is going to be something that, like, doesn't really get explored. I I imagine the ending as one of those, like, you know, Buffy and the gang looking Mm -hmm. out over the, you know, landscape and being like, well... I guess we're going to go have to rebuild something. You know, like there's no, there's not like a, I don't know, unless there's some kind of epilogue 20 years later where it's like, and then we rebuilt Southern California. Good job, us. (laughs) It doesn't have earthquakes anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine it's more of a like, now we're looking at all of the devastation that has been wreaked, both physical destruction and the death of an animorph, but also like the emotional toll of 54 books of war on teenagers Um, so that's going to have to be dealt with. And then of course we've got Jake's family, which I think is probably going to be a big part of 53. You know, did they die in this explosion? Are they still around? What happened to Tom? Are we going to be able to rescue Jake's parents in any meaningful way? Or is he going to have to like go live with Naomi and Rachel and the two sisters? All right. Now I want the death list. Who lives and who dies? Who tells the story, Greg? We suspect that. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. We suspect that an Animorph is dying. More yeah. Animorphs could die. Other characters could die. Will anyone die besides this one Animorph that's been heavily foreshadowed? If so, who? Good guys, bad guys? I want to hear the list. Uh, Visser 1 dies, and one of the original Animorphs, a parent, possibly Lauren, because Tobias can't catch a break, uh. and James or a couple of the auxiliary Animorphs are also going to die. All right, two books, four named good character deaths, and Visser one. Five deaths total. I'm being very specific. That's yeah, good. it was great. I like it. I like it. What's going to happen with the Free Horkager? Uh Well, they're eventually going to go off and uh, take back their planet. Nice. Possibly as part of the negotiations. Do the Andalites show up? Uh, yeah, but they are not helpful. That sounds right, yeah. There's a question I want to ask, but I'm not going to. I'm going to... Oh. I guess... Are there any plot threads that you would love to be resolved, but you know aren't going to be resolved? 
like time matrix. That's, exa- <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thing I was looking for. Like, because yeah. there's so, the there have been so many off the wall things in the series so far. I'm just like, what's going to come back? The voice from 41, the one who gave Jake the dream. Yeah, that one I know doesn't come back because Ted told I me. I told you. Yeah, I didn't want you to have hope because it doesn't come back. Elena. Yeah. Neither the, do Garrett. The blind girl, the girl from the school. I don't. I, I don't think she's going to come back, but I kind of no. hope she does. But like, seriously, you guys. Where's the time matrix? What are we doing with that? Maybe the question is, when is the time matrix? No. <laughs> the question is, where? <laughs> right. Isn't it really the same question? So then I think it is time for you to look at the inside cover and specifically predict 53. Oh my god, what are... is Are those taxons? They're definitely taxons, and they are horrifying. Why are there so many of them, and why do they have so many eyes, and why are their eyes made of jello? It's terrible. Okay, uh, it turns out that one of the taxons on Earth is actually Arbron, and he leads the taxon <gasps> up- uprising amongst the Yerks. Oh my uh, god! So the taxons become their new allies and, and, uh, and, and rise up, and they are able to lead the taxons into glorious victory against Wow, that's going to be tough since you just poke a taxon and it, like, explodes. But I'm so happy... For Arbron and his Texan resistance. I would love that's that. amazing. I would love that so much. Great, that's, that's my favorite so prediction. Great. I'm super into this. I hope that's what happens. Um, it's not going to be. That. I feel like what we're missing is like some major piece of leverage over the Yerks. Like there's no reason the Yerks won't just continue to take over. Like, what are the Animorphs gonna do that's gonna turn the tide? They blew up the Yerk pool, but like, what the heck else are they going to do? I don't know. I don't understand how they're going to win this thing. I don't either. And I'm real worried about it. I mean, I know they must because... Like, probably, right? I hope so. But I'm also like very... Ted would not have brought us here. The Animorphs lost. Ted wouldn't have let us got this far. You think the Animorphs lost and you forgot? (laughs) Jenny? Okay, I pro- that probably wouldn't have happened. Maybe I'm just trying to make Grey worry. How dare. <laughs> By the way, the description of the taxons in 53 is... Uh, no, sorry, 52 is taxon bodies are large and unwieldy like a massive sack of guts. Yeah, so I'm real excited that. for that description to come back in 53. It's just a book full of sacks of guts. The sack of guts book. Every series needs one. Ugh. All right, that's all I got. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm so oh, excited about this so last worried. one. <laughs> last two, really. I'm so worried, too. If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Instead, he decides to not sabotage... Sabotage? Yes. Instead... Sabotage. (laughs) Say boatage?